I'm kind of out of it. I had, so I'm trying to wean myself off of Mucinex because I've been Um, drinking it all week, but I can't go to sleep because I'm just like coughing the whole night and feel like hell. mm. And so I took a nighttime Mucinex um, at midnight and at 5 a.m. And I'm still like, oh, goodness. So I'm sorry if I a little if groggy. I, I kind of feel high right now, honestly. <laughs> Maybe as we like get into the conversation, your juices will get you'll get you know get flowing and you'll get more yeah in tune with with talking. Maybe I'll start hallucinating and this will get real fun. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, if this is a not to like go ahead and jump into our movie, but. This would be an insane movie to be high while watching. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. <laughs> I, I don't it think would, I could. It it fucked me up sober. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. It messed I, me up a lot imagine. when I was, I was like devastated at the end. Um, yeah. Do you want to like take a moment to reflect on our first season or whatever we're calling it? Yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh. I can't believe like. This will be our 17th episode. Can you believe we've done 17 of these? Yes. <laughs> because we did the work. Um, but I am like, I am proud of us. I am too. I'm just like looking through all of our old episodes. Me too. For so we, memories. We started with soul. We did. Just, it just feels like so long ago. It was so long ago. Gosh, that was November 26th we kicked off. Wow. Mm -hmm. That was a good movie to start with. Yeah, for sure. Then we had Jurassic Park. Uh, My fave. Yep. Real classic. When Mm -hmm. I think about, because we'll we'll be talking about music today. And that's another movie where music is just. mm. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Just beautiful last Christmas we can just forget that one (laughs) I swear to god when we go back to if we do this if we're doing this still which hopefully we will be around Christmas time this year we have to do of like a few more better banger Christmas movies yeah I want to say I do still like I'll keep watching last Christmas it's like a feel-good movie for me it was Mm -hmm. one of those movies I didn't know was bad until I read (laughs) what other people thought (laughs) That's how I felt about the other woman. And then I was like, oh, people didn't think this was as funny as I did. Hmm. Oh, that movie. Our mm-hmm. only 1.5 rating, our lowest rating. Oh, my lowest rating. What was my lowest rating? Now I'm going to go back and look. Continue. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, if I had to pick a favorite, I'm going to say it, it's between Spencer and favorite episodes I mean not necessarily favorite movies but favorite episodes Mm. Spencer and um the writer Mm. yeah I I thought those were the writer was really good I loved Spencer I mean episode wise I know we did not enjoy power of the dog but I really enjoyed our episode oh that was fun yeah it was fun (laughs) our episode was so much fun even though like I mean you know I know we have different takes than majority of critics on that movie and we were kind of dreading going into it but it ended up being so much fun and we laughed a lot and yeah um yeah 
I, I, I listened back to that. I don't listen back to a lot of our episodes, but I did to that one because I was like, I got to I got to relish in this enjoyment <laughs> again. Um, really quick. So my my lowest rating on this podcast so far was last Christmas at three. I just realized I've not given anything under a three. I've been pretty. Yeah, you're generous. Nice. Yeah. With my ratings. So hmm. I also I gave soul a five, right? Like I came mm-hmm. out strong. You did. I, I, I stand by that, but it makes yeah. it hard when you start at a five <laughs> and I right. can't keep giving movies fives. So, which maybe yeah, it's a good thing. I've only given two movies fives. That's Jurassic Park, obviously, because it's my favorite. And then Mrs. Doubtfire. Mm. Um, our Sydney Poitier episode was mm. pretty great. That was fun. A fun yeah. watch. Yeah. I just loved like learning about him and some mm-hmm. cinema history I liked our scream episode too yeah that was early on it feels like it right yeah because we watched it for like it was like Christmas time and yes you <laughs> said I should be watching Christmas movies but this is what I'm watching instead and then we had that whole run where we were um or maybe more so me was finding connection all these movies had connections to Christmas somehow we were on a spiel for that for a little while but yeah I feel like we just rattled off a lot and there's still like so many other oh my gosh so So, many yeah like y'all have plenty of content yes so much to catch up on definitely go back and listen to all these episodes every one of them is a gem I agree and I'm excited to let me start over I'm grateful (laughs) for this podcast um, because it kind of forced me to watch movies, which sounds silly. Like you don't have to be forced to watch movies, but it can be hard to like make time in your day. Mm-hmm. And there's so many distractions and this is definitely like a time for television and, oh yeah, you know, mini series and things. So, um, I think it can be harder to keep people's attention for a, for an hour and a half movie, let alone two, mm. two plus, um, so I feel like it like reconnected me with my, one of my first loves with movies. So yeah. I feel like I have all of these movie facts in my head now swimming around from what we've watched. So I feel like my trivia skills have been bumped up maybe like 5% or so of what I can contribute to a trivia night. Yeah. I was gonna say, we need to find like a movie trivia night, but yeah, any, any, yeah. they need to cover these 17 movies. I <laughs> I just need a dedicated Jurassic Park trivia night just to prove to myself and the world that I know everything about this movie. That's got to be a thing, surely. Somewhere out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, I've been like really excited doing this with you and I'm very excited to like continue this. Well, guys, if this is the first time you're listening to us, we are Why the Flick. I'm Claire. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are two former journalists who just like to spend our time sitting around watching movies and investigating, I suppose, everything that we're watching. But I'm very excited for today's episode, and that is Interstellar. Gosh, there's so much to like get into with this movie. So much like behind the scenes stuff that I learned while researching this movie. So I'm really excited to get into it. But um We're going to talk about all of that. We're going to also talk about just like the world building that is going on within this movie. 
including the science behind it, real life inspiration, um, as far as, you know, what's going on on earth, what happens within, you know, the black hole, everything like that. We're also going to talk about how these different characters have to deal with their own ethical dilemmas, where they have to act either individually or, you know, think of the larger group and what kind of situation that puts everyone in. Then we'll break down some of the most um, iconic scenes and we will also share our Why the Flick moments. Enjoy. So Claire, why the flick did we choose this movie? So it's our last episode, like (laughs) we've already said, and it's not forever just before we take our extended break, but I think we've both been wanting to recap this movie for a while. It's been on our like high list for since we started our like movie spreadsheet. And I almost thought that this was going to be our first movie on the pod, but I I know, right? Gosh, can you imagine if we had started with this? Um, But I feel like it's a good bookend to end our, it's not even like season, just like end our first round, I guess, of movies. Yeah, run. (laughs) Um, And I also feel like it's a good way to cap off for when we started with Soul Mm -hmm. in our first episode, which I'll kind of like get into. I'll share why later on. But honestly, if this is our finale and you know, we have to go out with a banner. What better way than to talk about Interstellar? Yeah, totally. Yeah, this was high on my list from the beginning. And I think I even put it on our schedule a couple of times and I kept moving it down because I was like, we're, we're not ready. Like we got yeah. <laughs> we had to like practice with all these other movies just to get to um, Interstellar because it's just such a big, intense movie. Um, so right. I'm glad that we that we saved it for last, best for last. Yeah. We're seasoned professionals now, so we know how things go. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I guess like when, so I'll just like go ahead and, and share some of my thoughts on this movie right off the bat. It, it, I didn't realize, I guess I never really realized how long of a movie it is and mm-hmm. that it is two hours and 49 minutes. Also, when I was rewatching and taking notes in preparation for this episode, it took me four hours to watch this movie in between like having to pause. I just typed a lot of quotes down and then, you know, I had to take breaks, had to like let the dogs out, had to get up (laughs) and get a snack. So um, it definitely took me a lot longer, but I didn't mind it. Like it was fine. Um, I just dedicated a night to it. So But anyway, so the movie came out, I think, in October of 2014, which, you know, what other movie came out in 2014 that we have recapped? No, tell me. The Other Woman. So um, it was a good year. (laughs) It was a bad year. (laughs) No, I just love how 2014 ties these movies together. But anyway, what a a time to be alive. (laughs) Well, I didn't see this movie, I think, until it came out digitally, which was probably in 2015. And I remember everyone being like, you got to see this movie. You got to see this movie. And I remember being completely blown away by it once we watched it. Like, first of all, it's visually stunning. 
And it's crazy how real everything looks. And two, the reveal at the end, like, oh my God, blew my mind. And I was not expecting that to happen at all. So, but I was also really devastated at the end. Like I just was so sad because of what happens to Murph and Cooper. And I think I was really haunted and traumatized by it. Yeah. Haunted is a really, and traumatized, both really good words for this movie. So you're probably asking, well, why the hell would you want to keep watching it? Um, Because there's just so much, so much in this movie to unpack. And um, I mean, I think in some ways it is a happy ending, but it's just, you look back and think of all the, you know, time that people missed out on with their, with their loved ones and all the things that went Mm -hmm. wrong and what could have been like that whole thing. And I think that's what kind of leaves you haunted. Yeah. So this was the, you know, probably the fifth and sixth time that I watched this movie. I watched it twice in the past couple of weeks. And it was the first time that I watched it where I felt really familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like nothing really surprised me because I had already seen it, you know, three, four times, whatever. Um, And then I was able to look at it more critically. So going back to like my first experiences, yeah, I just, I absolutely love this movie. Um, I would find myself wanting to watch it, but also being like, I I don't know, I'm not ready to get that fucked up right now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just to kind of stays with you. Um, but I always loved it. I think though, and we'll talk more about this. This is a movie for me that maybe the more you watch it and really dig into everything, it starts to break down a little for me. Okay. And we'll talk about how, as we go along and I'm still working out like whether that really, I don't, I don't think it really impacts you know, how, how I feel about this movie, (laughs) my love for this movie. Um, but it was just, it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say, I know what you mean about how, like, sometimes you just don't feel like watching this movie because you're like, I don't want to be fucked up right now. Um, like I remember we were over at a friend's house one time and they wanted to watch it. And I flat out refused because I was like, (laughs) this movie is too sad and I don't want to watch it right now. And, and, you know, cause it is, I mean, it's, it's intense. And I mean, other than that, though, I do find it to be a very beautiful and compelling story. I think it's also funny though, that pretty much like exactly a year after this movie came out, The Martian came out, which has Matt Damon and Jessica Chastain in it. So, and it's set in space. So I like to think it's an alternate reality from Interstellar, but, and it's like a a lighter, a little bit funnier version of what happens in Interstellar. I made the mistake once of putting this movie on before bed. Don't do that. Oh, don't fall asleep to this movie. You just, you you won't sleep. You'll wake up anxious. Did you have any crazy nightmares? I don't think I had nightmares. I just was very unsettled and just like messed me up the next day. But (laughs) yeah. Okay. Let's get into our cast and crew notes as we do. Uh, So obviously the stars, Matthew McConaughey, I say obviously, because if you didn't know that you've been under a rock. Um, all right all right all right all right all right um and and a lot of these stars I'm not going to list off all their credits you know who these people are um oh yeah so Matthew McConaughey plays Cooper the one credit I did want to point out is that he also stars in Contact which is a 1997 movie Mm. with lots of similar uh themes it explores the universe and other dimensions and I've only seen it once and it's been a while I definitely plan on rewatching it um because it's a it's a lot of similar stuff 
Um, and apparently Matthew McConaughey is just like our like wormhole actor of our time. Nice. I don't know. Um, <laughs> okay. And then you have Mackenzie Foy. She plays young Murph. Um, we have a few different Murphs in this movie. Yeah. Um, she plays Cooper's daughter and she was Renesme in Twilight. Oh my God. I thought she looked so familiar. Yeah. And like, Where have I seen her before? That makes so much sense. And she's, she's just a little cute in uh, Twilight. I know. Yeah. Um, absolutely loved her in this movie. Um, and then Jessica Chastain plays adult Murph. She's one of my favorite actors. I would say over the past like 10 mm-hmm. plus years. Um, you mentioned the Martian. She is in Martian. Uh, so that came out in 2015 and it was, it was part of a string of space movies. So you had um, Gravity in 2013, oh. Interstellar in 2014, The Martian in 2015. And I feel like I'm missing a couple of others too that fall like yeah. close in that, in that timeline. Um, yeah. So we could like have a, like a space week. <laughs> Can we have a space month? That would be fun if we did a theme. Oh, God, that might be too much. <laughs> <laughs> a whole month might be a little too far. Um, and then Ellen Bernstein plays old Murph. You have Anne Hathaway. She plays Dr. Brand, one of the scientists and astronauts who, um, go on this mission, you know, her from dark Knight rises, where she also worked with, uh, Christopher Nolan, Mm -hmm. Michael Caine plays her father, professor brand. We're going to talk a lot about him. And then you have Wes Bentley who plays Doyle and David Giassi who plays Romilly. Um, they are two of the other crew members. So there are four crew members total. And then lots of other supporting actors and big names. So you have Casey Affleck, Timothy Chalamet. This was like his first big I know. role. I remember <laughs> that like Timothy Chalamet was in this movie. Yeah. Um, you have David O. Yellowo and John Lithgow or Lithgow. And then you have Matt Damon, which at the time <laughs> was a huge surprise. Um, his casting was totally kept under wraps. Like people had to sign like NDAs and shit. Christopher Nolan told the Inquirer that he kept Matt Damon's casting secret because he wanted it to misdirect the audience and add to the big Mm. twist. So Matt Damon is part of a very big, um, twist. I can't think of the other word I was uh, uh, trying to use. Um, but Christopher Nolan said, I really love the idea for an audience to go when they see him at Damon. Oh, it's Matt Damon. It's going to be okay because yeah. everyone loves Matt Damon and you think he's safe. And then <laughs> yeah. he very much is not. <laughs> no, no. I remember watching this. I'm just like going to jump to the part where you see him revealed. And I remember watching this movie for the first time and being like, is that Matt Damon? Like, which yeah. is probably how literally everybody reacted. Um, and yeah, like he wasn't on any of the promos for the movie. His name wasn't mentioned. He didn't like, go to any of the premieres. So I'm like, this might be uh, the biggest cover-up story in human history. In addition to... <laughs> calm, calm down. <laughs> I guess as far as like, there's two cover-ups in this movie. And the second one would be that Matt Damon's in this movie. Um, yeah. And that was, I, that's why Nolan did it. Yeah, I had a few other notes about the cast. So like with Matthew McConaughey, I remember him more from his rom-com days, which was like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Failure to Launch, The Wedding Planner. And I think Interstellar was when I was first introduced to him as a drama actor. Oh, wow. Before Dallas Buyers Club. And I was like, wow, he has range and 
he can, he can do serious too. Yeah. And he's also like, like he's everyone's guy. Like he's, everyone wants to like, just have a beer with him or talk to him. He's yeah. a very in real life, like super philosophical. Um, and this is a very philosophical movie, heavy with ideas, which is just like so fitting for Matthew McConaughey. Um, mm -hmm. and so I think he was a really smart choice. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to let you know is so like with Anne Hathaway, um, she is who I feel like is one of my doppelgangers, but I swear to God, you look dead up like her in this movie. Oh, she me? looks like you. Yes. Ah, I saw well, her with her short hair and I was like, that's fucking Elizabeth. Yes. So she has a pixie cut in this movie, which I'm, I'm not showing mm -hmm. off right now. Cause I have a, uh, <laughs> a, a bandana on, but, um, Yes. And it's a great cut too. I have to say she might yeah. be like, I always take in like a picture to my hairstylist, even though at this point we're doing like the same cut every time. Um, mm -hmm. Emma Watson is usually my, my inspo. Mm. Um, but Anne Hathaway, especially in this movie, I really love her cut. Yeah. But Hey, thank you. Uh, by the way, I'll take that as a compliment. You're, you're welcome. I was like, this is, I might as well be watching Elizabeth in this role. <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any other cast members you wanted to shout out? There was just one. Um, so Bill Irwin does the voice of Tars. And I was like, that name sounds so familiar. But I didn't really recognize anything that he was in, except he does um, play Mr. Noodle on Sesame Street. I don't know who that is, um, <laughs> but either. that came up a lot. So he is a beloved actor, I guess, on Sesame Street. And then he was also in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the live action with Jim Carrey but I was like Bill Irwin maybe I'm just like thinking of Steve Irwin more so maybe I mean, that name Irwin is getting drawn to me but I was like Bill Irwin that sounds so familiar and I didn't recognize you know anything specifically um, I'm looking it up because I think I might oh oh yeah I know that face yeah um oh Rachel getting married that's another good Anne Hathaway movie he's in that he plays her father mm -hmm. um yeah yeah, he's very familiar. I meant to, so I watched this on um, Amazon Prime mm. and Amazon Prime does that like x-ray thing where they tell you the actors yeah. and fun facts. And I meant to go back and look at that because that, especially for a movie Aww. like this, um, that's awesome to have. But I, I just remember, I think the voice of Case popping up and I, or like a picture of the actor and I was like, I know him, but I'm sorry guys. I didn't, I didn't follow through. Yeah. No worries. Um, but yeah, there's like so many good cameos in this movie for sure. So many. Okay. And so I think the casting in this movie is brilliant because you do recognize and are familiar with so many of these people and the leads are just, uh, they're solid. So, you know, this movie spans so much time and space and is loaded with so many ideas that are new to the audience or most audience members that it would be super easy, um, to lose people you know, for things to get confusing, for things to feel rushed, all of that. And I think a big reason that this movie avoids some of those pitfalls, and not everyone agrees with that statement, um, but I think it's because of the cast and the performances that really mm -hmm. anchor it all. So for me, both Matthew McConaughey and Jessica Chastain are great examples of that, but I'm going to talk about Jessica Chastain for a minute. She has such command over her, her voice, like her mm -hmm. vocal acting and her delivery She's just, I, I just think she's one of um, the best performers of our time. And in her video messages, so the first oh. one where she, she has just turned Cooper's age, she's 33. And it's the first message that she has actually sent to him. 
And then again, when she's delivering the news that um, Professor Brand uh, has died and she knows about plan A, just those snippets of performance, they're just so powerful. And I think it's, it's performances like that, casting like that, that really makes this movie work. Yeah, I absolutely love Jessica Chastain in this movie. And just as, as you were saying, how she has such command of her voice, the first thing that came to mind were her video uh, calls that she did. Just the fact of like how she starts off, you know, trying to like have this strength or maintain her strength and composure. And then you see her like, just like break down in one sentence and start sobbing. And it's just like, oh, it's so difficult to watch. And I, yeah, amazing, stunning work from her. I saw maybe on Instagram, <clears throat> excuse me, where she was sharing the movie, um, the Tammy Faye movie that she did recently. And she was showing her script and how many notes and tabs and every, like wow. she breaks down every single second. Um, and I think that assuming that she had a similar process, you know, for something like this, I think that shows that she has clearly thought about every second of every line, every word and every, uh, and every piece of dialogue. And yeah. And she's nominated for that role too, for the, for Tammy, Tammy Faye. Faye. Yeah. I thought mm-hmm. so. Um, okay. Let's jump into our crew. So Interstellar is directed by Christopher Nolan. You know him from Memento, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, Inception, Dunkirk, and coming soon, Oppenheimer, which I am super excited about. Mm. And that star is Killian Murphy, who I love. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Interstellar is written by Christopher Nolan and his brother, Jonathan Nolan. Together, they wrote Memento, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, and Prestige. Have you seen Prestige? I have not. I'll be honest. The, the posters and the trailers I, I remember seeing, it just... Didn't, yeah. didn't draw me in and didn't feel like a Christopher Nolan really production hmm. just just like based off of the the promo yeah. materials but now I have to watch it <laughs> um Jonathan Nolan has also written for Westworld uh cinematography by Hoyta von Hoytema um, he worked on The Fighter Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy another great mindfuck movie um Ad Astra another oh. space movie Dunkirk and the coming soon Oppenheimer. I think you'll talk more about kind of the the look and maybe, you know, design of this world later. Yeah. I mean, it's like you said uh, in the beginning, it's visually stunning and how much of that is, you know, performance, directing, cinematography, camera work, you know, visual special effects. Um, I don't know, but it all looks beautiful. Um, I have read people who say, you know, that in terms of cinematography, it's pretty straightforward. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe nothing to write home about. I don't know that that's, that's fair, but it's a beautiful movie. Whoever wants to take credit for it. <laughs> um, editing by Lee Smith, who did Let the Right One In, The Truman Show, all the uh, Batman movies with Christopher Nolan, as well as Inception and Dunkirk. He also edited um, X-Men First Class and X-Men Dark Phoenix. And then... <laughs> the best for last music by Hans Zimmer. Ugh. You know him from Inception, Dunkirk, Dune, Gladiator, Rain Man, The Lion King. Absolutely. Uh, so you'll notice in this crew, and we've had other movies like this, where um, a lot of the crew work together in multiple movies. This is definitely one of those instances. Um, it sounds like Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan are our best buds. BFFs. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, and I also want to point out, so Hans Zimmer has 224 composer credits on IMDb. Holy shit. 276 award nominations, 146 award wins. Somehow he's only won one Oscar and it was for Lion King. (laughs) Again, fuck the Oscars. (laughs) Um, So this music, this music, it's big, it's epic, it's emotional, it's loud. Too loud for some people. Um, Lots of organ and piano. And to me, it really helps the movie, helps the movie scale of things, convey the scale of things in the heart of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, one article said, just like in the subheadline, the way they put it was that Hans Zimmer scores the universe. Oh, I mean, imagine. What a compliment. What a compliment. Just imagine like that. I mean, that was his job. Hey, Hans, can yeah. you like, I don't know, score the universe? Like that's Well, and it's so crazy because I don't know if you came across this, but like I read that Nolan specifically told him very few things about this movie. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I'll get into that. Crazy. Yeah. Um, so Nolan sent Hans a typewritten letter describing the theme of the movie, but not the plot, and he included um, like a parable in this letter, and it was again typewritten, like on a typewriter. Um, <laughs> and he asked Hans to work on some music. The, the letter had also accused, uh, accused, uh, accused, where did that come from? <laughs> Included, <laughs> man, what is in my psyche? Okay. Anyway, the, the letter also included, um, dialogue based on a conversation between Nolan and Zimmer's famous families that they had previously had. I think they were on vacation together again, they're like best buds. Um, mm-hmm. so Hans said that he, I'm on a first name basis with him. Um, he wrote a tiny uh, piece of music inspired by what it means to be a father. Mm-hmm. He played it for Chris Nolan, to which Chris said something to the effect of, well, I better get to writing the script because he hadn't started writing the script. Oh, God. And he said, I now know what the heart of the story is. So I think that speaks to how key and powerful this music is. Um, I'll yeah. talk about the, the naysayers in a second, but um, going back to the letter, so Business Insider reported that Han said it was that the parable in the letter was a story about a father who leaves his child to do an important job. It contained two lines of dialogue. I'll come back. When? And quoted something that Zimmer had said a year before during a long conversation with Nolan and his wife uh, in London. There was no movie to be made. There was no movie to discuss. We were talking about our children, Han said about that discussion. Um, Zimmer has a 15-year-old son. And he said during that conversation, once your children are born, you can never look at yourself through your eyes anymore. You always look at yourself through their eyes, mm-hmm. which is very much echoes a conversation that Cooper has with young Murph before he leaves, yeah. um, about when you're a parent, you're just there to be memories, um, you know, for your children or kind of the ghost of your children. Mm-hmm. So what I love is that this is such big music but that is so personal. Yeah. Um, you know, Hans talks about in interviews that like, that's where he gets uncomfortable because he's more vulnerable talking about those things and mm. um, working off of those things. And he certainly, he, he works that way for this movie. I think it also speaks to the fact that while this movie is like a big space epic, it's also a very intimate story uh, between a father and daughter and, and other kind of loved ones. Before I go to the naysayers, just give me your thoughts on, on the music of this movie 
Oh, I love it. I mean, it gives <laughs> such a sense of wonder and eeriness. I think my favorite scene that combines the music with, with sound specifically is when Cooper is leaving his family and you can, he's driving in the truck and he's like got tears welling up in his eyes and you hear it overlaid with not only the music, but the countdown of the launch mm-hmm. and it's like crescendoing, but yeah, it's so good. I, I think that's one of my favorite moments. Yeah. And it helps with like, that's a huge transition or pivotal part in the movie. And we'll, we'll talk about this movie takes some big leaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a big leap moment. And the music, I think, helps really tie it, everything together and helps with that transition. So it's not so jarring. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people complained about this music. Because boo. They, boo. What do you know? Because they thought it was too loud and would overpower some of the dialogue to where they couldn't hear it. Chris Nolan said that like directors have written to him complaining about this. <laughs> Um, I think, well, first of all, I just think you're wrong. Yeah. The the music can be an equal player in a movie equal to the dialogue, to the performance, to all the other elements. So even if it does maybe overshadow the dialogue a few times, that's okay. Yeah. I never really experienced that. Um, I never felt like, oh my God, I can't hear anything or I missed out on something important. Um, so I don't really get it. I also think it's very likely that a lot of theaters across the country just weren't equipped to mm. play a movie with this kind of sound mix, like the like the speakers, the system that they had. Yeah. Just probably wasn't, you know, up up to up to standards. And that is not Hans Zimmer's no. or Hans Zimmer's fault. Like, yeah. sorry that your equipment cannot. <laughs> match the caliber of this genius of a man yeah um so yeah I don't really get it um I will say though because it showed in in IMAX I don't know if I could do IMAX (laughs) it might be I really wish I had seen it I really do wish I could have seen it in IMAX and the closest we can get is our tv downstairs which is pretty large but not not an IMAX um uh screen I think it was filmed with an IMAX camera too Oh, maybe that would, yeah, that makes sense. I feel like I had read that, but I think seeing it in IMAX, I feel like would just give me an anxiety attack the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Also guys, there's something really great called closed captions. So if you can't hear the dialogue, just pop those up and you can read them. Easy fix. I agree. So in, you know, rewatching and preparing for this episode, I just started listening to the soundtrack just, you know, on Mm -hmm. its own. And it is strangely calming. Really? For me. I don't know if anyone else has that experience, but it helps me focus. Yeah. Um, so that's like, that's my new playlist, just kind of on repeat at work. And then when nice. someone interrupts me, I'm like, whoa, I forgot I was here. <laughs> I was, I thought I was in space. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot where I was. Um, you know, we, we've talked with movies before, like uh, Spencer on all the elements coming together, uh, directing, performing, cinematography, all those things. And I think this for me is definitely a case where all those things come together and work really well. I don't think there's a yeah. weak spot in those elements for me. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. me either. Great. 
Okay, so Claire and I are now going to attempt <laughs> to summarize this movie, this two hour and 49 minute movie. Claire, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to you, let you start with okay. your summary. I fit mine into one sentence. What? Yep. You know, you gotta keep them guessing, keep them intrigued, you know, I don't wanna give away everything. So my description is faced with the end of the world, a father begins a harrowing journey through space and time to save the lives of his family and the rest of humanity. I like it. Succinct. So mine also starts with faced with. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is it really? That's yeah. funny. Uh, mine is two sentences, two longer sentences. Okay. Faced with an earth that is becoming too hostile for life, a former NASA pilot and a crew of underground astronauts set out to find a new planet. Headed into the unknown of the universe without any guarantees, they must decide between saving the loved ones they left behind or saving the future of the human race. It's pretty similar. I mean, yeah. As far as what we focused on, I liked how you called, what did you call Cooper? A former NASA pilot. <laughs> and, yeah, and I called uh, him, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no go on. Uh, you called him that and I called him a father, which I feel like uh, is interesting mm -hmm. difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that whole like, deciding between saving your loved ones and saving the future of the human race that's a huge theme um true that we're going to get into yeah i want to read imdb's description so a team of explorers travel through a wormhole in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival yeah eh, that okay. sounds like any other space movie to me right you know i was thinking uh in our in future episodes we should um like judge the imdb rating and Ooh. more so and like be like this is trash or this is good you mean the description the imdb description oh yeah um, yeah yeah i'm just I mean, used to saying imdb I, rating but yeah i've judged the ratings too <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah we should totally do that we should rate yeah. <laughs> rate the ratings okay let's get to some of our topics and themes for interstellar i want to start i want to start by talking about what i think is maybe the elephant in the room with this movie mm -hmm. which is the length the pacing and the exposition and I think these are the areas where that, that get maybe criticized most yeah so like we said it's two hours and 49 minutes that is a long ass movie you guys know how I feel about movies that are over two hours this is an exception I also on first couple of viewings don't remember feeling like or realizing that it was so long, I probably just like flipped yeah. it on and didn't know like what I was getting into, but it never like, you know, felt crazy to me. Um, but it is packed with ideas, packed with storylines, packed with exposition. And like I mentioned before, it takes a lot of leaps because they are trying to cover quite a timeline and so much story that they have to kind of like jump ahead um, yeah. on a few things. And it doesn't work for everyone. I get that. I can see how someone even on first viewing watches and thought, I don't get it. <laughs> like <laughs> this movie's trash. I honestly, I like, I'm not shocked by that take. Um, and I can understand it. So I want to talk about all those things first by, um, talking about the state of the earth when this movie starts that, that were presented and then also the NASA missions. And I think that will open up some conversations. So when this movie starts, we know it's set in the future. 
we don't know how far in the future doesn't it, it feels very similar to kind of our time um mm-hmm. there's definitely some like technology that is more advanced than what we know in our time but otherwise it feels pretty similar we're in somewhere like rural america cornfields for days farmers for days and the world is plagued by blight that has totally killed off crops like wheat and the only thing left um, that can grow on earth is corn so there's a lot of it they experience frequent dust storms that cover everything um, seeps into their homes covers their tables causes uh, breathing difficulties I don't think we really learned that until later on Mm -hmm. Um, and then the opening scenes are also cut with like documentary style videos which I'll talk more later about um the the dust bowls of the or dust bowl of the 1930 <clears throat> I'll try that again the dust bowl of the 1930s uh really inspired kind of um this the the state of things on on mm-hmm. earth and to me again the world just feels so similar it feels like something that we know it feels totally plausible I mean we're dealing with issues um of climate change and drought and um, we know, you know, what kind of lies ahead for us, um, or potentially lies ahead for us. Um, so it all just feels very real. And the, the, the characters to them, this is just like their new normal, which is a concept that we know very well. We were all thrown into a new normal when the pandemic hit, we were suddenly scrubbing our hands 20 times a day. We were wearing masks. We weren't going out unless we absolutely had to. And it just kind of became normal. And I, so I think that, especially watching it now, um, mm-hmm. makes it feel even more realistic and, and relatable. And I think given how long this movie is, given everything that it asks of us as an audience, to me, this is a brilliant way to kind of lay the, that foundation because it's, it makes it easy for us to latch onto. Yeah, it's, it's um, funny you said new norm because I literally wrote quote this is the new norm um in the movie and it starts where maybe like the initial chaos of what's going on in the world has settled a little bit and they're more so like acting in like resolution mode where they're just trying to fix it versus panicking about it um and I think do you want to get into like the parent teacher meetings I feel like that gets more into where we learn about the state of the world and also like the education system. So like there's this part where Cooper has to, um, well, Murph has gotten in trouble at school. So Cooper has to go have a parent teacher meeting to find out what happened. And it's in the scene where they talk about how schools are wanting to turn kids into farmers because the world is running out of food and universities are like only taking a handful of students. And so at this point, Cooper's son is 15, and they're already ruling him out of college and wanting to push him into farming because they need expert farmers who can, you know, work with the blight and the dust. And so the reason, though, Cooper is there is because Murph got in trouble for showing the uh, Apollo landing to her classmates. And so I think she had an old textbook, but since all of this has happened textbooks now have been updated to show that it was faked and it was done so to bankrupt the soviet union and they're doing this 
to try to get away from like putting resources into wasteless technology and focus like they want the focus to be on earth and saving the earth not on space so they're just like discouraging any sort of um like exploration and interest in you know things outside of our universe and I do love that Cooper you know says he'll punish her by just taking her to a baseball game and then ends up getting her suspended um but yeah I mean this just felt so weird and scary (laughs) to me that they can just change textbooks to you know yeah I mean, that happens now. I mean, right. we've seen that, but. That's what I mean. I think that that's another piece of it. And again, so this is 2014 and certainly a lot of these ideas applied then, but 2016 on, I think our world has changed a lot um, in terms of discourse and information and misinformation and, um, you know, more politically polarized maybe than than ever. And so this idea that they would, you know, remove the moon landing from textbooks or that they would say it was faked honestly does not feel um that far from things that we've seen in our real life so um that one comes to mind is just like uh, not necessarily in this country but like holocaust deniers and people who who Mm. teach a different version of that um and there there are a number of things like that i also think it shows that i think you said they're in a state of like resolution or in resolution mode. I would say they're in acceptance mode, but they're just trying to like the solutions they're looking at are just kind of putting a bandaid on it. Oh yeah. Um, and just to kind of exist in this new world, as opposed to the NASA, the NASA, um, method, uh, going big, go big or go home or go Mm -hmm. big or we're all going to die here soon. (laughs) Right. So that, I think that leads us pretty well into the NASA mission. So, and by the way, there's going to be so much story detail we do not mention. I'm assuming y'all have watched the movie. And so I'm not going to read the script back at you. So when Cooper and Murph find themselves at uh, this underground NASA, it is NASA, but it's gone underground. They kind of explain a lot of exposition. So NASA started detecting gravitational anomalies 50 years ago. 48 years ago, they noticed a wormhole had been placed near Saturn. Wormholes are not naturally occurring. So someone, quote, they uh, placed a wormhole near Saturn. That puts 12 potentially habitable worlds, planets within our reach. So Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, 12 astronauts were sent into the wormhole and their mission was to assess. They all went to different planets. Their mission was to assess their planet. And if it was viable for human life, send signals back and then go in for the long sleep and wait to be rescued, hope to be rescued. Mm-hmm. Um, Cooper asks, well, what happens to the people who's, who land on a planet that's not viable? And uh, Doyle says something like, hence the bravery that's required for this mission, mm-hmm. um, because those people are just kind of uh, shit out of luck. <laughs> so the, the result of that first mission was that three planets have potential they, they learn that three uh planets have potential the data and signals that they are are receiving very rudimentary it's kind of like thumbs yeah. up or thumbs down kind of thing right so so my guess is like the nine other astronauts uh are dead um yeah and so we have uh miller's planet man's planet and edmund's planet cooper's mission uh with with his crew is to visit those three planets Th- this is 
I guess how I would characterize the mission. Visit the three planets, determine which one is best, come back to Earth, and then dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot is plan A or plan B. This is where things start to kind of break down a little bit for me. But okay, so plan A is to identify a new home and then send a space station, which is where NASA underground, the thing that they're in, this massive building, it is a space station. Mm-hmm. And so then you would put everyone on Earth, probably not, a lot of people from Earth, billions, <laughs> um, onto the space uh, station uh, and head to your new home. The problem is, is that they need to figure out how to harness gravity in order to get this space station through the wormhole and, and to the new planet, et cetera, et cetera. The details are kind of light on all of that. Um, yeah. Plan B is to find a new home and then do a population bomb, which is basically mm-hmm. they have, I can't remember how many, but a lot of um, like fertilized embryos and yeah. uh, you would basically cultivate those and, and to, to colonize the new planet. Yep. Okay. Bear, bear with us. <laughs> so going through all that, I have, I have a few questions and things that I think can be seen as potholes or just kind of problems. Um, first of all, when we talk about the big leaps, here's one, how quickly Cooper signs on for this mission. And then he's, he bounces, uh, the next day, the same day, whatever. And the next thing we know, we see him on, on the spacecraft. Like it's a lot. I know he's a former NASA pilot, but the fact that like he agreed to it so quickly that he, you know, the idea that he wouldn't need like more special training, like, I don't know how long it's been since he's he's even flown any kind of Mm -hmm. aircraft. It's a big leap for me again, was never a problem for me, Yeah, but I think it's an example of like one of those leaps that people do have had trouble, you know, buying into. Yeah. I mean, I kind of got it like I don't the timeline of like when he was or like when I guess he agreed to take the mission versus when he actually leaves seems to be murky so I'm not sure how long that was and like he even tells Professor Brand like you were gonna do this without me why do you need me and Professor Brand says well you're the only one who's like gone that far and who's had actually been up there um everyone else here has oh wait sorry um cooper who did i say you said no but he hasn't he says like he barely left the stratosphere he's flying but he said you've flown like these he said yeah i mean that's true he hasn't like left the stratosphere but he's gone further than the other people um who have trained for this mission like they've only done simulations so one of the other big questions people have is Cooper, who lives not that, I mean, I guess maybe it took him a few hours because we go from daylight to, to nighttime um, between his home and um, NASA. Mm-hmm. But why didn't they already know about Cooper and recruit him? It's, it's an awful yeah. convenience for him to just like show up and they're like, oh, you're the man that we need. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they didn't loop him in sooner. That's a good question. My theory is that um, well, okay. It doesn't answer why didn't they like recruit him sooner, but in terms of like, once he's there and professor brand is like, Hey, you're our guy. I think it's possible that professor brand knows that there are other advanced beings out there 
I mean, they, they, they do kind of know this, that are sending messages to us. And so he's just kind of assuming, oh, well, I guess they, they chose him. They chose Cooper or yeah. Murph. And so he's like, I'm going to, this is, I'm going to go with this. And this is just how it works. I don't know. Yeah. That's and they have way. that conversation because Cooper or well, Professor Brand says, asks him or somebody asks him, like, how did you come across our underground bunker? Like nobody would know this otherwise and so cooper's like you're not like gonna believe me if i tell you this and they and they like get it because they feel right. like someone they know who there there is a they who placed this wormhole here so they do believe him that he was somehow like contacted and sent a message to like find them yeah and when they're asking how they how cooper found them i think murph speaks up and says gravity and uh, yeah. again, to them, it, this is, this is all about gravity. Um, and they've, you know, noticed those gravitational non- anomalies. Um, anemone, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's not surprising to them. Okay. Here's, I started uh, texting Claire about this question again, when you start for, or for me, you start like really digging into all this movie and, and, um, you know, breaking it apart piece by piece to me the questions just really start to pile up why can't the astronauts from the first mission return to earth so the ones who found a viable planet like dr man miller and edmund why wasn't it designed so that they would find the planet and then return and then they'd go there why are we doing basically a second mission that's the same thing (laughs) Except this time they're going to return to or, or like Cooper's mission. Cooper would return to Earth and yeah. then they'd go back. So was the plan always for Cooper's team to return back to Earth? Yes. Okay. And Professor Brand says, by the time you get back, I promise that I will mm. have solved the gravitational equation True. to get the okay. space station up there. Yeah. Um. I mean, yeah, I, you asked me this and I was like, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer. I still don't know the answer. I mean, yeah. I'd like thrown out, well, do they not, did they, when they first sent it, the team of 10 or uh, 12, 12 yeah. did they not have enough fuel to be able to come back? Obviously not everyone's going to come back to, because of, you know, if their world's not habitable, they might've, they probably died Mm -hmm. um then I was hanging out with friends last night and I was also like let me ask this you guys this weird question and so you know we talked about how maybe it has to do with the time slippage of some sort or other which becomes really apparent when they land on Miller's planet um yeah I don't know the best answer I can come up with and I don't think it's a great one or enough to explain away a whole is that it's due diligence so send out 12 astronauts, hope a couple find a planet, but then we're going to have to send another crew to like confirm it and, mm-hmm. you know, to put Verifying. their eyes on it. And then, and, and because it was only one person going to each planet, so they're by themselves. Yeah. So maybe right. take a crew there, but, but that, I mean, this is such a key, such a key part of the movie, the, the mm-hmm. details of this mission and again, at my first viewings, I was all in and, and went with it and it somehow it made enough sense or whatever. But now when I start uh, looking closer at it, I'm like, these are some big questions. And there's another big one that we'll get to much later. Um, yeah. You could also ask, 
why didn't the original astronauts have like the fertilized embryos? Maybe they weren't ready. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe they just hadn't gotten that, that far. Um, I'm going to share a link in our description to, um, an EW article. That's like a list of plot holes. A lot of them are less plot holes and more like, you know, convenient coincidences and contrivances. Yeah. So they go into a lot there. And there are a few that, that I thought were, were good, um, on that list. But I, the, the question is, is it a problem for you? Some of these kind of missing details and, and holes. No, because I didn't really even think about it till you brought it up and it still doesn't really bother it for me. I think you can find, I think there are going to be plot holes in anything we watch, you know, with, with movies there can be. And sometimes it's just like, well, they did it that way because then we wouldn't have this story otherwise, you know? So that's kind of what it comes down to. And yeah, I still bought into the whole like explanation and setup. I think it's like just so much for you to like wrap your head around that you kind of are like, you kind of like have to accept it and be like, okay, yeah, that's what happened. And, you know, it's not till further viewing that you might start to, to question these things, but it didn't really like ruin my watching experience. I just feel like there's a reason they just didn't say it or didn't include it. And I'll just buy into it. Well, yeah, the reason is because even at three hours, like you can't cover everything that they, that they, uh, try to cover again. I know it's a problem for some people. Um, I don't, I I don't know what it's going to be like for me the next time I watch this movie, I'm going to have to take a lot of space from it, but I don't know, honestly, I don't Uh know if it's going (laughs) to, um, (laughs) but I don't know if it's going to take anything away the next time I watch it. I really, I don't know. Yeah, but I think like like the music is a big thing that carried me through this movie um, and allowed me to like not care about those things. Okay, Claire has some making of behind the scenes. Some behind the scenes deets. I like that. So it seemed like as far as how this movie got started, I just want to like dive into the beginnings of this. So in the beginning in the beginning. So it seemed to have a very tumultuous time getting made, at least in the very beginning, which, so like what one, th- one um, summary I had read or, or, you know, article I'd read was that it wasn't in production hell, but quote unquote production purgatory, which I kind Ooh. of um, liked. Yeah. So Jonathan Nolan, who we mentioned uh, wrote the script in about 20 or not 2016 in about 2006 or 2007 and originally it was going to be directed by Steven Spielberg unfortunately or maybe fortunately uh, he had to depart from the project and that's when Jonathan's brother Christopher uh, came in to direct and this is the first time that both brothers have worked on a completely original script Um, not like adapted so the script went through a lot of reworks after this point and the plot like always remained the same but I just want to like like share some ways that this movie would have been totally different oh yeah one one is that this isn't like too I think that big of a deal maybe but it originally featured Murph as Cooper's son he was a boy not Cooper's daughter (sighs) which yeah interesting I love um, that it's a daughter. Yeah, me I too. think it I think it somehow changes it a lot. Okay, okay. 
So I don't think it had anything about Cooper being the ghost. I don't think it had anything about that, you know, part where he goes and realizes he was the ghost all along. Um, they only visit the ice planet. That's the only planet that they go to. Hmm. And quote uh, from this article I read, Matt Damon is replaced by aliens. No. Killer robots. Wait, wait, wait. Aliens. <laughs> killer robots and gravity machines I don't even know what that means but yeah mm-hmm. that's a, <laughs> would have been it's a totally, totally different, different <laughs> totally different movie um I'm glad wow. we didn't get that <laughs> I want to know you know that like projects don't get made all the time and then maybe they're revived and there are you know some really successful movies where that's a kind of the story that like it's a script that the director started working on 20 years ago or something but I wonder how many movies there are that it was just so hard to get made and that, but, but someone stuck with it yeah. and, and where yeah. it changed, like, so I would say drastically from kind of the original. So drastically. Yeah. yeah. And like, they talked about how, so, I mean, it changed after that point, but the film was still inspired by these other sci-fi classics, like 2001, a space odyssey uh, is a big one. Close encounters of the third kind also kind of came up even jaws came up as um inspiration so jonathan talked about how important it was for the script to convey these like huge universal questions but still be grounded in human beings first and foremost and um the other thing too that they wanted to get across in the script is the need for space exploration and Mm. he talked about how you know we've we've been able to do these remarkable things with technology, but yet nobody's been back to the moon. And there's um, a lot of sadness in that realization, at least for, for him. So there was a quote that Jonathan, there was an interview like between all of like the cast and crew in the collider. And there's this quote that really stood out to me. And he says, growing up, you're promised jetpacks and we got Instagram kind of a bum deal, I think. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. sure we sure did. It is that like I've heard this from people in the biz. Um, like this is the new golden age of space exploration because mm. private companies are now in yeah. the game. Um, but yeah, when when it's touched on in the movie, basically, like one of the reasons they're underground is because you just wouldn't get the support. Right. Um, there just isn't support for NASA, and we've definitely seen that in real life true yeah i think in interstellar like even though leaving earth is depressing there's still a lot of hope and optimism in getting to you know explore space so to kind of tap into that yeah i don't think i think it's this movie is as depressing as maybe you do (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't really find like leaving earth depressing i just find what happens between cooper and murph to be really sad so we'll get into that yeah um so now I want to like shift into how they talked or not how they talked, how they brought the science to life a little bit more because there's a lot of buy-in you have to take. There's like some wild science to this movie, but it's not all faked. Like they wanted to make sure it was rooted in real possibilities. So they worked a lot with Dr. Kip Thorne, who is a Caltech professor, I'm sorry, physicist and probably professor, but um, he's really well-known. You probably would recognize him if you saw a picture. He's kind of in league with Stephen Hawking and he became 
an executive producer on the project. Afterward, too, he wrote a book called uh, The Science of Interstellar, which is about the movie. And so because of that, there's a lot of real science that goes into this movie, like a lot. And I am not a scientist, so there's going to be like some things that I just can't explain, but some things I think are, are cool to know. So one thing that is really funny is that a lot of this information I got was from an interview I read with Thorne that he did for Scientific Ameri American. And he did the interview because the same interviewer had posted something about how the science was like, quote, laughably wrong. And so, yeah, I know, Damn. real ballsy. And so Thorne read that, sent him a copy of his book and encouraged him to reconsider his criticisms, which Fuck I was like, yeah. that's a great move. In such a respectful way to do it. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. But also badass and... So going back to like how they created the science for the movie and why it was so real, it was because of Thorne and he had two stipulations really. One was that nothing in this movie could violate known laws of physics and two, anything speculative would come from a scientist and not a screenwriter, which seems pretty, yeah. I mean, yeah, like what's, I'm trying to find the word respectable, you know, maybe. Yeah, something. I, I, yeah, I think it is. And to like make those demands and 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 the fact that, you know, Chris Nolan and company agreed to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, they did for the most part. Like and I think there was some there were some ex exceptions and there were were some budding of heads like Christopher Nolan really wanted them to travel faster than the speed of light, which didn't end up making it into the movie. Thorne was like, that's not how this is going to go, but yeah. And yeah, I, that, that's one of those like details, you, you know, as a reporter, as a writer, that saying you have to kill your darlings, you know, sometimes a, a sentence or a mm. word or an idea you have yeah. in a story that you think is just game changing and, and awesome. Um, but actually, it's not that big of a deal to like the readers or, or the audience. So like the idea that they don't travel at the speed of light. Right. I don't, I don't care. It wouldn't. It's no. like it would not make any difference to me no, I know they're yeah. going real fast <laughs> right and doing dangerous yeah yeah uh, integrity I think is the word I was thinking yes of. yes yes integrity of like staying true to real scientific um facts so and Thorne said like overall it was a really great brainstorming process that was able to blend art and science together and the other reason why Thorne was really like I think passionate about this project is that he really saw it as an opportunity to renew interest in science yes and he was really motivated to use the movie to inspire people to make real contributions in science so even though like these things in the movie are some of them are have to be like fictionalized because we don't know everything he his hope was that somebody might take that and make them real eventually which is pretty cool yeah, you have to wonder like how many people, especially like younger people, saw this movie and were inspired to become so. scientists in some way or or to study physics. Like, I want to. I know it's not good. <laughs> like, I'm not I, great at science, yeah. but yeah. Here, yeah, this is a good chance to say if anyone has recommendations on like how to learn all this shit that's in Interstellar on a like you know digestible 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 <laughs> realistic way 
hit me up because I really, <laughs> I really do want to learn more. And like maybe Kip Thorne's book is a good place yeah. to start, but also like he's Kip Thorne. And so maybe he, right. he doesn't break it down enough. <laughs> like talks to me like I'm a two-year-old, please. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, like I, I'm intrigued. I want to learn all this stuff. I know it seems so like crazy to wrap my head around as I just like, yeah, I mean, this movie is like crazy to wrap your head around too. It's definitely something I think you need to watch like five or six times to fully absorb everything that they're trying to tell you. I can't, Um, can confirm. I watched mm -hmm. it five, six times and yeah. Yeah. So I will add it into like, so that was how they built the the science or like what they stipulated for the science of the movie. And, you know, we have all this expert knowledge, but how do we use that to create something realistic on screen? And so this is where the visual effects comes into play. Um, this credit goes to a team at Double Negative. They were the ones who, who brought this to life. And so the one thing I want to add in here really quick is that even though there are all of these crazy visual effects, there is a shockingly small amount of CGI that was used in this movie, which is really okay. crazy. Yeah, um, it is. Like apparently Nolan super dislikes CGI. Mm-hmm. So you'll see that a lot of a lot of the effects were done through practical means and no, like I don't think any green screens were used at all. I'm pretty sure I read that. I'm like, trying to understand how. Like, how do you do a, a wormhole practically? <laughs> so like that, that part, yes, definitely like had to be a special um, visual effect, but like the um, spacecraft, they use miniatures oh. um, for like the spacecraft they shot in Iceland and on both planets, although the 4,000 foot wave um, on Miller's <laughs> planet was animated, not real. But yeah, like there was definitely a lot of practicality that went into it. So obviously Gargantua, that's the, the black hole that had to be digitally created. There, <laughs> there was no way they could do that, I think, practically. But um, I see what you're the, saying, though. Yeah, yeah. Like in the moments they, where they could do it practically. Right. They, they wanted to. And so Thorn with the, with the black hole, he did, I do not, I'm, I, he, I don't really think they <laughs> talked about what he did, but I just wrote quote number crunching and that's the <laughs> best way I can like describe what he did. I don't know exactly what it was, but he number crunched to make sure that what was created would be scientifically possible with the black hole. Mm-hmm. And so after, um, weeks of work, him working on this number crunching, Thorne developed the equations to simulate real world physics for the um, VFX software. And so he, yeah, I don't know how it, he just did. So he, they took the equations and used those, applied those to the software to create the black hole, which took um, a year of work to create. Damn. Yeah. Um, on certain frames, it took the computer more than a hundred hours to render and they ended up dubbing it the worm renderer. (laughs) Holy shit. Yeah. Which like, we can just go ahead and talk about the scene where they go into the black hole, which is like remarkable. And they, um, when they come up on it, it shows it as a sphere, which I think is really cool. Um, and they like have an explanation for like what it is to be, you know, the, what it means to be a black hole. Yeah. Black hole or wormhole or wormhole. Yeah. And did That's, they say wormhole and black hole too? Those I'm are sure. two different things. 
okay 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 sorry wormhole yeah because it's called the worm renderer my bad sorry if i've been flitting those terms around <laughs> carelessly <laughs> um but yeah like i think it's crazy remarkable like and you know when they go through it, I think it's also visually breathtaking. It's like a tube of stars. That's like the best yeah. way I can describe it. Yeah. I, I would say tunnel, but I like tube better. Tube. Yeah. Because yeah, a worm, a wormhole is a tube. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll add about the wormhole is that since the visual effects of it were based on actual physics, actual, you know, calibrations, actual equations, um, it was the most in-depth rendering of a uh, wormhole that they had ever had up to this point. And so it led to real scientific discoveries on gravitational lensing and black holes, wormholes, whatever. Um, so yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Isn't that crazy that this movie somehow contributed to science? I know that they yeah. had like this data now that they could use the research on. Yeah. Um, or e- even crazy. just having like the visual representation, like how mm-hmm. cool that must be for scientists to have. And that they maybe couldn't have that any other way because just because of the time yeah. and budget, you know, right. <laughs> scientists don't right. get that kind of budget. <laughs> no, they're like, Hey, that's a pro tip for scientists team up with yep. a yep. Um, visual effects team to get the, you know, uh, renderings that you need team up with Chris yeah. Nolan. <laughs> oh yeah. He'll support you. Yeah. So the last, um, like, vis- like, I guess, uh, visual effect scene, I'm not going to get into it too much. Cause we're going to talk about it later, but the Tesseract at mm-hmm. the very end. So this is one of those instances where Thorne talked about how portions of the film, um, are just beyond our scope of scientific knowledge and time travel is one of them. So for this scene, Nolan, was able to make up his own rules. He kind of had more creative liberty and Thorne found that um, there, like this was a rationale, like a scientific rationale because they don't understand the laws of physics in you know, fifth dimension or, you know, whatever this, this Tesseract thing is yet. And so, but to create this again, very few digital effects were part of this uh, scene there. I mean, if you Google like, this specifically you'll see it was a set like they built a physical set um for for Matthew McConaughey to like float around in there were uh walls that they had built that looked like the backs of the bookshelves um and there was I mean there was a little bit again of visual effect applied here it was called a slit scan photography which essentially means they use long explosions exposures um to create quote the impression of an object spreading out through time itself. So I'm not quite sure what that means, but just, yeah, again, like the fact that they built a set and then have just applied a little bit of um, VFX effects on it was, is like pretty insane to me because it's such a crazy moment Yeah, that you, yeah. I was just uh, Googling photos of the set and that's wild we should include yeah. that uh, on our social oh, yeah. um yeah for sure I, yeah I did not know that and I wouldn't have guessed that I know and no yeah. green screens I think in that part either like yeah that's wild wild so yeah good job guys <laughs> you did <laughs> you did good <laughs> you fooled uh, me <laughs> for sure 
Well, okay. Is this a good time to talk about the science in real life? Yeah. Okay. Transition. <laughs> I'm going to get into it. As Claire said, I also am not a scientist and these things are very complicated, but I'm going to try to give you the uh, short version. So wormholes. Let's talk about real quick, their role in the movie. As I mentioned before, 48 years prior to the start of this movie, a wormhole appeared near Saturn. Wormholes are not naturally occurring, which means someone had to put it there. The mission is to go through that wormhole to find a new planet. So what is a wormhole? Essentially, it's a shortcut through space and time. So in the movie, it's illustrated by drawing a small X on both ends of a sheet of paper. One represents the, your starting point, the other your destination. The problem is that those two points are too far apart for a person to travel in his or her time. So you fold the sheet of paper in half, making the X's, X's on each end touch and then poke a hole through the X's and voila, you have traveled through a wormhole. Even more simply put, a wormhole bends space to create a tunnel to get from point A to point B much faster and in a way mm -hmm. that is possible. So the question is, are wormholes possible? Kind of. The physics and the math are there. The physics and the math are sound as I got a lot of information from uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just theory. So we don't know how to create a wormhole. That's a pretty big <laughs> roadblock. <laughs> and even yeah. if we did, we know based off of the physics that they would be incredibly unstable and collapse. So you would have to figure out a way to like prop it open somehow. Mm. One thing I'd like to read more about is like this idea of making a wormhole. Yeah. Like, what, what, what do you make it out of? Like, do you go to Michael's and get some like, fabric glue? Like, what the fuck do you even like start to make a wormhole out of? I don't know. I didn't get that far, um, but I would love to know. Okay. So again, yes, this is, it, as you talked about, wormholes are based off of real science. We just don't know how to, you know, make that yet. Okay. Mm -hmm. So black holes and in the movie, uh, Gargantua is, uh, the black hole. I would describe it as if Saturn and the sun got together and had a baby because oh. <laughs> it looks like it's a giant ring of like fire. And then it has a mm -hmm. ring around it like Saturn does. And then the inside is just like, it's like it's hollow, which is black. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and again, I'll share, there are two, um, good links for the breakdown from Neil deGrasse Tyson. So black holes are, are a no in terms of whether we can and should go in them. Um, absolutely so, not. <laughs> absolutely not. So um, let, let me step back. So in the movie, um, Miller and man's planets orbit Gargantua, uh, the giant black hole. Throughout the movie, the black hole is an obstacle to be avoided because if you go in, it's bad. Um, also because of the gravitational pull, that's what causes the time slippage and the time mm. differences. So the closer you are to it, the slower your time is moving, more time is passing on earth. Eventually Cooper enters that black hole and that's when he finds himself in the Tesseract. Okay, so what are black holes? They are places in space where the gravitational pull is so strong that no light can escape, which means we can't actually see a black hole. We can see things and activity around a black hole. That's how we spot them. Um, but you can't actually see in the black hole. The amount of matter inside a black hole can range from the equivalent of a mountain to the equivalent of a million suns. 
Wow. Still, still, a still million can't comprehend. Yeah. A million suns. <laughs> I was like, exist. wow, what yeah. does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> wow, I get it, but no, I don't. <laughs> um, it's, it's just, it's insane. So can humans enter a black hole? Like I said, it's a bad idea. So Neil deGrasse Tyson explained it this way. If you entered a black hole, you would be pulled to its center in a way that would stretch your body, like stretch Armstrong. And it would keep stretching it until your body snapped into two pieces. And then those pieces would continue to pull and snap until you are just a stream of atoms falling into the abyss. <laughs> so he wants to go into a black hole. <laughs> he wants to go on a trip. Um, I love him. He can really explain things so well to, to where Holy I can shit. understand that. He did say in order to travel into a black hole, you would have to find a way to travel around and away from its center. Like that's the death mm. trap, but it's, it could in theory be possible if we found a way to avoid that center. Good luck gotcha. to whoever wants to be the first <laughs> to try that. Yeah. Who wants to try first? <laughs> yeah. No, thanks. Okay. So Jeez. those are our, our black holes. Um, I also want to talk about relativity slash time dilation. So that is a big part of this movie that's where a lot of the tension is is created is because um so on miller's planet for example we'll talk more about that but one hour of their time on miller's planet equals seven years on earth mm -hmm. and so they need to uh move fast and again a lot of that is um because of how close they are to gargantuan so what is it super fucking complicated so <laughs> I'm not going to cover much, but this is, I'm just going to read um, this definition from livescience.com. Time dilation is the slowing of time as perceived by one observer compared with another, depending on their relative motion, so speed, or positions in a gravitational field. It's a consequence of Einsteinian relativity in which time is not as absolute as it might appear, et cetera. So here is a, first of all, is it real? Yes. And here is um, a real life example that I think maybe makes it a little more understandable. It happens every day our, with our GPS. <laughs> I'm just like looking around. My... <laughs> Where am when? I? <laughs> when am I? Um, it happens every day with our GPS satellites. So because our GPS satellites are further away from the center of Earth's gravity than we are, those satellites exist in a space where time moves more slowly. We're talking microseconds. But because mm. GPS signal, signals are for navigation, those microseconds add up. If, if you're trying to get to a precise location, those matter. So much so that when GPS signals are sent back to Earth, the data is already pre-corrected for the effects of relativity and time dilation. Oh, wow. so, so that we on Earth have the correct, most precise information. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Is this also why my GPS lady is like... <laughs> you missed your turn. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like next time <laughs> I use my, my GPS and, uh, mine is a, a man, a, um, well, it used to be a British man. Now it's like a bro. It's anyway, ew, <laughs> I know I got I got to change it back. But anyway, um, next time he like tells me a term when it's like too fucking late, I'd be like, it's the the time dilation. Is he like, yo, dude, you missed your turn. Yeah. He's like, turn right on buttermilk pike. That's what he sounds like. <laughs> it makes me giggle. So that's why I keep it. 
Interesting. But yeah, that's time dilation actually happens every day in a way that impacts us, which is really crazy to think. Um, in the movie, also, do you think? Sorry, also on. this is um, this is like a tangent. Do you think this is why we have daylight savings time? <laughs> no, <laughs> I think it's because I don't know. I don't it's know because why. of farming. Yeah, it's because of farming, but like why we still have it. Um, which I saw that it was um, a bill passed, I think, in the House, Senate, to get, or in the Senate. And has it gone to the House? I think it's going to the House. I don't know if it's been voted on yet to get yeah. rid of daylight uh, saving. Fingers crossed. Time. I know. Um, for real. Anywho. Yeah. And so, in terms of time dilation in the movie and if it's realistic, it sounds like basically the time slippage is a super extreme. And that it wouldn't necessarily be that extreme in real life, or you'd have to be like nearly in the black hole for it to be that extreme. Um, so obviously they you know, maybe took some liberties, but I'm glad they did because that's a pretty big yeah piece of the story. Okay, and lastly, I just want to touch on cryo sleep. Uh, so or what they call in the movie the log nap or the log sleep, something like that. Um, is this? And it's in a lot of um, space universe, yeah, movies. sci-fi. Because of how long it takes to get to these different destinations. So Mars, for example, is like seven, eight months. So is this possible? Well, NASA and SpaceWorks Enterprises are working to make torpor possible. Don't know if I'm saying that right. Torpor is basically a forced hibernation. So Mm. it would work by lowering our body temperature from five to 10 degrees um, for weeks or months at a time. This would reduce the needed resources and habitat for the people on board if they're, if all or most of them are rotating whatever and and taking these long sleeps, which also means it would reduce the size of the spacecraft, which is important because it needs less fuel. So then you can, Mm. you know, get further with, with less fuel. Yeah. Um, And the hope is to actually use this on a mission to Mars, um, which I think last I heard was like 2037 is when they're hoping to send people. How long does it take to to get to Mars? Seven months. Okay. Yeah. The other thing is like waking up from cryosleep in the movie, like, like with Dr. Man, they like undid this thing and then he's pretty instantly awake. Yeah. Um, it would not work like that. It would be, uh, a slow, wake up process i don't know how long but obviously i'll Mm. include a link so you can read all more or or all about that um but it's not totally out of the realm of possibilities two thoughts one is that i think in the martian they don't use any cryo sleep i think they are awake the full because mars is where um matt damon's character gets Mm -hmm. gets stuck and so that team has to go to return to earth and then go back to Mars and then go back to earth. Um, and they don't get to sleep at all. I'm pretty sure they stay up the whole time, which is wild for it is. an extended amount of time. It's possible though. I mean, as long as you yeah, get to, yeah. you know, nap, like that's possible. I think the key is like, <clears throat> there's a benefit in reducing the amount of energy people on board need and resources. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. The other movie I thought of is um, which was probably in this line of space movies. Have you seen The Passengers with Chris Pratt and yes. um, 
what's uh jennifer, jennifer lawrence lawrence yeah was not a fan um but his um whatever cryo chamber chamber yeah thank you um malfunctions and becomes a big like whole like um uh, breaking off point for a lot of other things that happens in that movie so hmm. and they keep saying in that like that's not possible that can't happen but yet it happened to him so yeah, yeah in interstellar the chambers they're like submerged in water yeah um there was something i feel like i had read that said it could be possible to like use water to like like slow your yeah the time i guess of your body or something um didn't mm. like read up too much on it but it could be a thing yeah but i mean if you're submerged like how are you not drowning like when they wake dr man up he's like <laughs> spitting out water maybe it's a way to keep the body hydrated <laughs> and give nutrients okay. i have no idea what's in that water <laughs> is it even water i mean I mean, I would suggest IVs for nutrition. <laughs> also, they Water. talk about they talk about how like they can set timers, self timers, for when they they can wake up. What if those? What it? What would happen if that malfunctioned? And then mm-hmm. you know, like I think Dr. Mann said the last time he went down, he didn't even set a timer because he was like, and so he's just suspended. And even like, what happens when you go into that state? Are you dreaming? Like, is it like you know when? I don't know. I'm just rambling here now, but when they put the gas mask over you and you're oh, about to go into that. surgery and they ask you to count down and then the next thing you wake up and you didn't even realize you were out like wild. What is going on? Yeah. I hope it's like that. I don't want to dream and yeah, I don't want to dream for years. Yeah. All right. Okay. Moving on from science to history. Don't you love this podcast? This is uh- just... <laughs> like one uh everything 101 (laughs) yeah okay I'll try to make it make it quick um I mentioned before that the state of the earth in interstellar was inspired a lot by the dust bowl of the 1930s um so like I said blight has knocked out several crops already leaving only corn much of the land is dry and barren and very dusty um the beginning is interspersed with those documentary style interview clips with older people reflecting on the conditions of earth and it all this all comes together in the end but um old murph uh, played by ellen bernstein is is one of those people we see in the clips it's very ken burns documentary style and in fact nolan used clips from ken burns's documentary on the dust bowl of the 1930s so what was the dust bowl Dust Bowl refers to the region between Texas and Nebraska that became drought-stricken and subject to severe dust storms in the 1930s. Dust storms began in 1931 and lasted through the decade, which is wild. A lot of things came to a head to create it, including different federal policies, over-farming, changing migration patterns, changing demands and crops, drought, etc. I'll include the history.com link that explains all this really well. So here's a description of what the real-life dust bowl was like in the 1930s you tell me if it sounds familiar okay billowing clouds of dust would darken the sky sometimes for days at a time in many places the dust drifted like snow and residents had to clear it with shovels dust worked its way through the cracks of even well-sealed homes leaving a coating on food skin and furniture some people developed dust pneumonia and experienced chest pain and difficulty breathing yeah that's the movie like 
That's the movie. Yeah. That's the movie. It is the Dust Bowl. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you see, like, they're at the baseball game and all of a sudden sirens go off and it's just like mm-hmm. this massive cloud that yeah. it's not even, I mean, from the sky to the earth, it's not even just like in yeah. the sky. It's like this whole huge billowing um, dust cloud that sweeps down. And like, there are points where I think, I don't know if it was in the interviews, but we see too, like, they have to like, set their plates upside down on the mm-hmm. dinner table so that they don't get dust on them and yeah and their I glasses mean, and yeah yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I would describe like it's almost like those are tidal waves of dust clouds yeah. like moving uh, towards you mm-hmm. um so it's unclear exactly how many people died from dust pneumonia but estimates range from hundreds to several thousand people yeah by 1935, an estimated 35 million acres of formerly cultivated land had been rendered useless for farming. Oh my gosh. Wow. Um, I don't think I wrote these down, but there are anecdotes in the history.com article of just, I mean, how far some of the dust traveled, uh, traveled as far east to where there was like basically a cloud um over the Statue of Liberty. Like you couldn't see the Statue of Liberty because it was like, Gee, you know, oh clouded and, and dust. Um, yeah, it's pretty nuts. Caused great economic hardship for many years to come. Uh, and keep in mind that this dust decade coincided with the Great Depression. So people mm. were already economically strapped. Um, roughly 2.5 million people left the Dust Bowl states during this time. That is wow. one of the largest migrations in American history crazy Jesus. yeah could, could it happen again yes and it has in china dust storms have become almost an annual occurrence in northern africa millions of acres are turning to desert each year in both areas the main culprit is overgrazing of livestock that leads to deteriorating soil so i think kind of similar to over farming it just gets to a point where the soil is is shit mm. well not shit because manure is actually great for farming, um, well, right, right. but it's useless. Um, and of course, climate change is leading to drought, droughts, which only worsens the problem. The consequences are less land where food can be grown and displaced peoples and conflict over quote unquote, good land. So it's, okay. ha- it's, it's happening. Um, it could certainly happen again in this country and the consequences are not fun. Yeah, not great. it's wild what will, what the earth can do to um, correct itself. I mean, it's pretty. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it and not to our benefit necessarily. No, <laughs> um, this made me think, I was, I was like, there's sounds, this sounds so familiar to something else I had watched recently and it was on the crown um, TV show, but they do an episode about the great smog of London mm. that happened in the um, oh, 1950s yeah. and that was more related to like pollution um, but yeah I mean still like caused a lot of people to die from inhaling inhaling it they couldn't see I mean it was essentially like a fog not so much like dust or anything but a fog that descended on London and you know people couldn't see like there was like one scene in the in the show where some a woman gets hit by a car and dies because mm-hmm. the person couldn't see her so yeah I mean crazy like that was yeah yeah when you were saying that I was like I know I've seen it portrayed before and it, it may have been in the crown uh, where you can't see so you get struck by carriages 
anything yeah. that is a cloud that is approaching me that I will not be able to see around me freaks me out. Like the mist the, the have you seen that movie? No. The mist. That's a, it's a, uh, Steven Spielberg or not Steven King, Stephen King. Stephen King yeah. 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 Uh, Stephen King novel and movie and that one has monsters in it. That's a little bit <laughs> more far-fetched, but yeah, like just anything that's like a fog coming up to me, I just feel a little creeped out. It is. It's creepy. Well, kids, that has been my science and history lesson. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> for, for coming episode. to our segments. Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. Now we're going to get into some philosophical questions. Yes. <laughs> Jesus. So um, there's a lot that goes on between our characters of being confronted with these ethical dilemmas. And like the, the what it all boils down to essentially is like whether you should save your family or whether you, you should save the world or like family or people you love versus like mm. saving the world. And there is a really good quote. Um, I was, I watched the trailer just to like, you know, see how it was portrayed in the previews before it released. And there is a quote from professor brand in it. I don't know if he says it in the movie or if it's like in pieces in the movie, but he says, we must reach far beyond our own lifespans. We must think not as individuals, but as a species which goes into like how it affects everybody. And I think this is going to be an interesting discussion because I feel like some actions of our characters are more justified mm -hmm. and some actions are less forgivable than others. So speaking of Professor Brand, I think we should just start with him because he is kind of the mastermind, I don't, mastermind, but, and like, maybe, I don't know. Okay. We'll talk about it. So his big uh, thing uh, in the movie is that he lies to everybody about plan A, except that he confided in Dr. Mann because Dr. Mann apparently knew, but Professor Brand already knew that plan A wasn't going to work when he sent Cooper away. And so in addition to like everybody in NASA, he's been giving false hope to also Murph who ends up working with him. Uh, later in life and trying to like solve his equation, even though he knows that there's no point in solving it because it's unsolvable according to him yeah. at the time that he is trying to work on it. He doesn't have all the data he needs to try to finish the equation. And, you know, it's not until he dies and is on his deathbed that he admits to Murph that he lied and there's no way to help the people on earth. And he tells Murph like I just wanted you to believe that your father would return and he asks her to forgive him and um Murph asks you know did my father know and Brand or yeah Professor Brand gives his speech of like do not go gentle and then you know and dies and that, that's the end of that so yeah it's a pretty a pretty big omission to leave out to leave yeah. everybody in the dark about Ugh. Yeah, um, Professor Brand is obsessed with Dylan Thomas, and do oh my not gosh, go so gentle into the good night. It's a great quote. I believe it was on my Facebook profile at one point where he used to put <laughs> quotes. Um, yes, I have a theory about Doctor Man knowing um, Plan A, but I'm gonna save it until we talk Ooh. about Doctor Man's um, that Planet. scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, he. 
and, and stop me if you said this, I'm sorry. Um, but Dr. Mann, he kind of speaks for Professor Brand trying to explain like why he kept it a secret. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that Professor Brand knew how hard it would be to get people to get people to work together to save the species instead of themselves um, yeah. or their children, which again, I think we've seen. <laughs> um, a lot of people couldn't wear a fucking mask to stop a global pandemic and people from dying. So like, it's not, that's not a stretch at all. Um, no, no. Uh, to believe that. Um, I think the big question is, did Professor Brand do the right thing? I know I wrote, is what he did unforgivable? What do you think? Um, here's the thing. <laughs> it's so hard. Like, I understand why he did what he did. I understand um, that he, you know, had to keep this like ruse going in order to motiv- keep people motivated because if he didn't, I mean, chaos, you know, people would panic. Um, I think people would lose hope, even though he thinks there is no hope. Um, I, I do find it, I don't know. I think I do find him to be a little bit forgivable and he's not totally unredeemable to me. Okay. I'm just going to talk it out because I don't know why not tell okay the world at large no you're not going to get them to buy into this and there would be just chaos and panic and every man for themselves but scientists astronauts people who go into space take a great risk and they know this and they do it often just for the sake of exploration in this case it's for the sake of the human race and i think that you could get scientists astronauts these astronauts on board even if you told them the truth if you told them because so the problem is that the answer to the gravity uh, gravity question is inside the black hole mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we can't get inside the black hole and so I, I i think it's possible that you could have gotten people on board to find a new home we're only going to be able to get so many people there not many and we're going to pop use the population bomb and create a you know new colony. I mean, then I mean, then those people have to agree to abandoning Earth and everyone on Earth. But I feel like it's yeah. possible that you could have found that crew. And then the question is, like, did Professor Brand just give up too soon? Which then yeah. begs the question: How much time did Earth really have in this movie? You know, was it a mm-hmm. matter of a few years or a matter of a few decades? Um, I think minimum it was a few decades. But anyway. Um, yeah yeah I don't know it's tough I think I mean it's a hard choice that he had to make um and I know like it's just I I don't know if there is a right answer or a wrong answer I think is what it kind of comes down to um I do wish that like he had confided and like I don't know like you know, work within the community to try to solve the problem. But then again, it's a problem that seems unsolvable. Yeah. Um, Are they I also feel like, for? yeah. I mean, did they, 
did they um i feel like they only had like, like they didn't have very few spaceships left like if they were trying to like get people off um the planet so like yeah. i don't even know if they could get um you know people off if they didn't have the station um yeah but you could also yeah. and i understand they're under resourced but mm-hmm. <laughs> we see a lot of resources and technology used um that then fo- maybe focus your efforts on building ships that we know can get through the wormhole. And yeah, they're going to be smaller and you're still not going to be able to take as many people, but at least you can take some people. Mm-hmm. Like why not some that people. be your focus, find a new planet, yeah. build as many ships as you can, instead of building this giant underground station, station that you can't even fucking get off the yeah. earth. Like, I know. Do, do we not think this through? <laughs> anyway, there's something Dr. Mann says, um, when he's like explaining everything and he's kind of sticking up for professor brand but he says professor brand was prepared to give up his humanity to save the uh, human species and then cooper says he was arrogant in declaring them hopeless mm-hmm. and i'm like oh that's a valid point yes but at the same time maybe professor brand took one for the team someone's got to be that person at a certain point you have limited time right before we don't know what the time is but limited time before earth is just dead someone eventually has to say guys this isn't possible we have to move to this yeah and professor brand was willing to be that person and i also i think another reason why i find him to be a little bit less um un, or a little bit more forgivable is like he was gonna go down with the ship too like mm-hmm. he was leaving yep. himself behind sacrifice himself and yep. he was like i know i'm gonna stay here and you know um be here and you know send everyone else away so i do find that a little bit to be more commendable but yeah it's tough it's a very interesting ethical dilemma it's also michael kane who just yeah and it's hard so lovable like, it's hard not to the the one thing i wanted to add really quick before we move on is that that the uh quote um the poem by dylan thomas was written for his dying father and so that like it's interesting when you when you think about it and how much Michael Caine like quotes the shit out of this poem but the poem means that even in old age you should resist death as strongly um as you can and so that's like Professor Brand trying to use this line this line in the poem to delay the inevitable of earth dying um and try to fight for survival so mm. it kind of gives it away and he's kind of giving it away a little bit i think yeah that's true and saying these quotes so but yeah mm. okay let me talk about kind of cooper's dilemma but i think cooper stays pretty consistent so mm. he believes he's going on a mission to save the people who currently live on earth including his family and millions of other families as well as the future of the human race because if you can get to that new planet then you've saved the future too he is willing to sacrifice an unknown amount of time with his family to do this, but he believes he will be back. That's what he's mm-hmm. told. When he learns that plan A is a total sham, his instinct is to return home. Uh, Dr. Amelia Brand says, Cooper, what can I do? And he says, let me go home. Yeah. So he's putting his family and the people alive on earth ahead of any mission to immediate mission to save the human race because he still thinks maybe there's hope or maybe he's just like I want to go spend what time is left I'm not really sure yeah Yeah. I mean the other thing I was thinking about with Cooper too is like 
you know, he, he realizes going into space is the only way, at least at the time, the only way he thinks he's going to be able to save his kids. But he's also really excited by the idea of space exploration too. Like, and he admits like, that's part of it too. Um, I want, I've wanted to go do this for a while, but the reason I'm doing this is because I'm trying to save my family and my kids. Um, and like, I think what, I think all the actions he takes are justifiable and, you know, he was misled thinking that plan a was going to work and it didn't. So I don't blame him for wanting to go back home at that point. And, you know, mm-hmm. and at that point too, they thought Dr. Mann's planet was viable to live on. So he was like, you're good. You're all set. You don't need me anymore. Let me go back home. And then obviously things don't work out that way um, mm-hmm. as we find out. But yeah. I guess and maybe we'll talk more about this later. I think there is a change in Cooper at some point though. Now that I think of it, because he throws himself into a black hole. He, he yeah. sacrifices himself for Dr. Brand. Well, he, yeah, because there's not enough resources yeah. for them both to make it to Edmund's yeah. planet. So he goes to into so the he, black hole. Yeah. So he does end up putting someone who's not him or his family um, True. Ha- ahead of him. Mm-hmm. Want to talk about Dr. Brand? Yeah. So her kind of dilemma is that she does not disclose that she's in a relationship with Edmund, who is the, um, one of the, the people who went and found a viable planet. And so this kind of create, creates a huge conflict of interest when they are trying to decide if they should go to man's planet or Edmund's planet. And so Dr. Brandt is advocating to go to Edmund's. And I think she makes a lot of fair points. Like she says, because man's planet is also close to Gargantua, it's probably going to be sterile. Like they just had just experienced on Miller's planet. And like I wrote, she's not, she's not wrong at all. I, obviously that's what happens and that's what the case. Um, but she also has this desire to see Edmonds. And this is where we're like introduced to this whole concept of like the power of love, I guess yeah. we can say, which I know you want to get into. Yeah. I want to say too, it's almost like, because she did have some logic for going to yeah. uh, Edmonds planet versus man's and we should mention they can't go to both. They don't have enough fuel right. resources. Um, and it's almost like Cooper overcorrects to mm-hmm. counter that. And maybe he's not thinking as logically I, because he's trying to like yes. counter whatever bias she has. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, Cooper basically calls her out about how she's in love with uh, Edmund. Um, and she's like, yeah. I, I love him and, and maybe mm-hmm. that's drawing me to him. Brand proposes that love has to mean something and that it's for more than just social utility, which is something that Cooper brings up. She says, after mm-hmm. all, we love people who have died. Where is the social utility in that? She suggests mm-hmm. that maybe love, the thing that pulls and tugs at us is actually evidence from a higher dimension, a sign from a higher dimension. Love like gravity transcends time and space. So maybe that's for a reason. Maybe it's, it's another, it's just a science that we, uh, don't understand. Um, was brand right? Yes. 100%. I mean, 
Miller's Planet, Man's Planet, they, they were shit shows. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're left to believe by the end that Edmund's Planet um, was the, the right planet. And maybe she was being pulled for a reason. Yeah. The, um, oh, go sorry. Go, go on. on. Okay. I was going to add that. So the one like thing they kept saying about the importance of the Lazarus missions, which was the 12 people who went was like, none of them could have connections because it would make yes. them hard, make it harder. Um, and so then it's revealed like Edmund and Rand obviously had a connection, which I think is, I think makes it stronger because man was by himself. He didn't have anybody to think about, but himself. So he acts selfishly. Whereas Edmund, I think if Edmund and man's roles were reversed, like if Edmund had landed on the ice planet, he would have thought of brand and been like, I can't, I don't want to bring anybody here. I can't do that to her because of, because of his connection. And that wouldn't have happened. So you can say, yeah. I think you can argue that his connection, they, having connections makes them stronger. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm thinking about it. Processing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I think it, it, just, it's a, I don't know totally how to articulate. It's a really big question that I think comes up in movies a lot. Um, you know, should you separate, you know, your emotional your feelings? feelings? Yeah. For a person or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, like, is that, is, is, is love inherently an obstacle to rational thought and progress and, you know, evolution? That's mm. a good question. Good question. I, I also think she was right. And we also see this idea of love as a science, um, threaded throughout the movie. So, um, and some people will say that this is a weakness, but Murph really figures everything out because she has a feeling. That's what she yeah. says. She has a feeling and she knows that really? the answer is in her bedroom. Mm -hmm. um, and then she eventually figures out, you know, who the quote unquote ghost is. And um, Cooper realizes when he's in the Tesseract that love is quantifiable. He knows that he can communicate with Murph using the watch because he knows that she will come back for the watch because of yeah. their connection. Sen because sentimentality, of their love. Yeah. yeah. The love between, and again, we'll get into this more later, the love between him and Murph is why they were chosen to be the ones to figure this out. So yeah, I think that, I think the movie makes a, a good case for love is a, I don't know if you want to call it a, a form of science, but it is some, it is a benefit it is a tool. Mm -hmm. Because um, that, is there anything stronger than a love for a parent, a parent has for their child? Like, right. Is that like the pinnacle thing? Um, I think it's also interesting watching back how many times that like just all the references to ghost. And one of the first lines that Murph says when she's a kid in the movie is I thought you, and she's talking to Cooper, I thought you were the ghost, um, which it was not in reference to like her actually thinking he was the ghost, but just he, I don't think he moved or did something. And she was like, I thought you were a ghost. Um, which is crazy. Like once you realize he is the ghost mm -hmm. and like you had alluded, you had already said Cooper says to her, once you're a parent, you're the ghost of your children's future. Um, again, another connection to him being the ghost. Yeah. It's just crazy. And that's the reason why the Tesseract is, is kind of created is because out of love they needed a way to a moment in time that's what it is which we'll talk about later not to go and give it away too much but like it's a moment in time that 
connects the fifth dimension and the third third dimension is that what mm-hmm. they are now yeah so yeah I think it's just beautiful I wanted to add one more thing about um Dr. Brand too um that I did not realize until I watched this movie this pat like most recent time there's a point where Dr. Brand admits she's excited to see Edmund but it doesn't make her wrong and Cooper says it might make her wrong which totally echoes a conversation that Cooper had with Donald before Donald was um, his father-in-law before he left. And so Donald had said, this world was never enough for you, was it? And Cooper says, what? Because heading out there is what I feel like I was born to do and it excites me. No, that does not make it wrong. And Donald says, it might. Don't trust the right thing done for the wrong reason. The why of the thing, that's the foundation. And Cooper says, and the foundation solid, which is saving his kids and and the world. So I was just like, this conversation happened, did it not, moments ago? And I rewound and I was like, this is literally the exact same conversation where they say, you know, it might make him wrong or it might not, you know. And then Cooper's using that on, on Dr. Brand, so- yeah, it's also it's easier to be objective when it's not you with you know the yeah. emotional pool and and Bran uh, says that to Cooper. She says, mm-hmm. "If we get to man's planet and it doesn't work, we're going to have to decide between your family or saving the human race." And I hope you'll be just as objective. Oh, I loved when she said that. Yeah. I was like, "Burn!" Yes. yes, that was great. <laughs> oh, so good. Right. So that leads us to Doctor Man, who. Okay, we're we'll talk about it. In my opinion, I have some, I have some thoughts. He he, oh my gosh, so egregious. He fakes the data on his planet and then attempts to maroon everybody um, at the end, and then also like subsequently kills Rom. Um, and so I think it's ironic, considering the fact that Doctor Man, everybody like before we see it's Matt Damon, it's like oh my god, it's Matt Damon. Um, everybody talks about Dr. Man, like he is the best of them mm-hmm. and he's why they're all there. They wouldn't even be doing all of this if he hadn't, didn't motivate the other, you know, 11 scientists, uh, or 11 astronauts to do the mission. But then you realize he's the most, in my opinion, cowardly one of them all of what he ends up doing because he knew the day that he got, I knew once they landed on that ice planet, I was like, that, that, that is, that is not a viable planet for them to be living <laughs> on. That does not look hospitable. And man knew it the day he landed, that there was nothing on that planet. And he goes into saying like, he resisted the temptation for years. Um, but the, he knew if he pressed that button, that someone would come save him. And like all of that to say, I, I understand why he did what he did, but I do don't absolutely not like agree with him. You could say that of every, of anyone, everybody, all those other scientists, the other, well, everyone pretty much died. Um, but none of them set their beacons off to say, this is a hospitable I know, place to live. Um, and, and so for that reason, I don't agree with him and I find him to be unforgivable. <laughs> <laughs> How do you really feel? Um, yeah. I want to talk more about his motivations and whatnot. Cause we're going to talk about man's planet, um, later in our scenes and I'll get more into it there. Um, but the theory I alluded to 
did Professor Brand tell all of the original 12 astronauts that if they are rescued, do whatever it takes to colonize the new planet with embryos and not return to Earth? Oh, maybe. Because there is like, why would he tell man and no one else? That for me can kind of explain some of like of man's actions and not not that they're right but and motivations um and you know we were talking before like why um why did the original 12 astronauts have a way to return home well professor brand at that point he knew that there's no need to return home because this is hopeless here so you can just stay there we'll come rescue you Mm. but make sure that you just colonize that planet and don't you know yeah yeah I think leave. that yeah definitely probably was the case but because you mean when he wakes up when when Dr. Mann wakes up he's um you know like surely this isn't the only planet you know you've come across that's viable and they're like no like this is we, <laughs> we're here dude you said we could come so we're here and so then <laughs> Dr. Mann's like Okay. And then he has to, we'll talk about it, but he has to spin this whole lie about everything about his planet. And so to me, I find him and his actions worse than what Professor Brand did ultimately. I'm reserving comments. (laughs) Oh no. Until we talk about that um, scene. Okay. So do we want to get into scenes? Yes. Wow, we've made it so far. (laughs) So far, just like it, just like the length of this movie, this will be the length. I was going to say, what if the runtime ends up being the same? Oh my gosh, that would be stellar. (laughs) Now I'm going to make it happen. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's start by talking uh, about Miller's planet and the aftermath. So the crew chooses Miller's planet first to visit because it's closer and it has been sending promising data. The big risk is that it's dangerously close to gargantuan, but they decide to take Mm -hmm. that risk. They think they can avoid that. So as they land on Miller's planet, all you see is water. It's beautiful, but not soups promising for sustaining (laughs) human life long-term. Again, one hour on Miller's planet equals seven years on earth. So the clock is ticking and literally the song during this mission is chilling it's called mountains for a oh uh and it sounds it starts off as it very much sounds like a ticking clock but like yeah like a musical like musically um and it's and again if i listen to this on its own when i'm like at work somehow it fucking calms me it shouldn't because it's it's super tense okay so yeah. the clock is ticking uh brand and doyle find wreckage so it's not looking good for miller mm-hmm. but Brand is determined to retrieve the like data box. Yeah. Um, she sees something floating toward the mountains. Problem is that those aren't mountains. It is a ginormous tidal wave coming right at them. Yeah. So there's this rush to get back to the ranger, but Brand gets caught under a piece of debris. Mm-hmm. Then TARS has to go rescue her. Those robots are handy and carries her back to the ship Doyle somehow <laughs> gets himself killed. He gets washed away. He, God damn it, Doyle. He had time get to in get in the back. goddamn ship. Yeah. Right. He was like, right there. And like, you saw that it was TARS, right? 
not case. I don't, yeah. I, I, Tars. I, yeah. Like yeah. Tars had it handled better than any of y'all could have. Tars like <laughs> out of nowhere starts tumbling. <laughs> like, and I was like, where did this move come from? I didn't know <laughs> you were capable of this. Comes in handy. So, okay. So Doyle, Doyle's dead. Nice. Then the, the ship gets like caught in the tidal wave. And now it's waterlogged and they have to wait for it to drain. Again, mm-hmm. time is passing fast on Earth. Yep. Um, then Cooper and um, Dr. Brand have kind of a, um, I don't know what call it, a heart to heart, but they have a scene together. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the first, when I was first watching it, um, or like when the, the recent rewatches, I was like, why the fuck are y'all just sitting there talking? You need to get going. And then I realized it's because they're waiting on the, the craft to yeah. drain. But then like uh, the tidal wave is, is approaching again. And Tar yeah. says they still need two minutes for draining. But Cooper's like, we don't have they time. Don't have, yeah. So they managed to get off. So I feel like instead of chit-chatting, which Cooper literally said earlier, said we do not have yeah. time for chit-chatting. Chit-chat. Yeah. Like they could have been finding a way to like drain this thing faster or whatever. But okay. Yeah. Whatever. When they get back to the endurance, um, so they fly, like they dock on the endurance is like the main craft. I don't know these the right terms, and then they take these little rangers um, <clears throat> to actually visit the planet. So when they get back to the endurance, twenty three years has passed. Poor, poor Rom. Oh my God! Yeah, because they left Rom in the Rom ship is by himself. Wait. Yeah, this was only supposed to be like two years tops and like Rom was probably gonna sleep well he was actually gonna try to help like figure out the um I think he was gonna research the black hole a little bit more yes. or something along those yeah. lines and then he was gonna like cryo sleep through the through the rest of the time but that turned into 23 years four months and eight days and um which equivalated to so on IMDb trivia it said equivalated to three hours and 17 minutes spent on Miller's planet Miller's planet yeah crazy there was one thing I wanted to add just like a little bit more of the science behind why the waves are so fucking massively huge which they're like 4,000 feet high as already already mentioned but and this comes from Thorne Dr. Uh, Kip Thorne so he talked about why the planet like you know has such huge waves it's probably because it's so close to Gargantua for one and he imagined that the planet the planet to be quote tidally locked keeping the same face toward the black hole he speculates though that it hasn't been that way for very long so the planet is like wobbling back and forth constantly which results Mm. in these huge waves and we know like you know the moon our moon controls like controls the tidal waves and gravity Mm -hmm. and all of that and so also because the waves appear to be a single crest and they're very solitary it probably means that there's like deeper water where they're coming from. Um, cause when they land, it's like only yeah. like sh- it's shallow. Like, yeah. Thought, like, yeah. Sh- um, pretty shallow. So yeah, just a little bit of science for that. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about the wave and I'm not even going to attempt because it's, <laughs> it's very complicated. Um, but it'll be in one of the links that I share. Okay. So, um, in the aftermath of Miller's planet, 23 years has passed. So they've been re- able to receive video messages. Um, there's a big question about why 
they can't send video messages I, mm-hmm. <laughs> or why they yeah. don't. So anyway, but they've been receiving video messages from their, from their loved ones. And so Cooper goes and sits in front of the, the screen to catch up on 23 years of messages. Oh, His son, Tom, uh, has graduated school. He's fallen in love. He's gotten married. Uh, he had a child, the child died, mm. uh, from dust complications. Yeah. Uh, grandpa dies, um, Cooper's father and in, in, in-law Donald. So a lot has happened and this is, this plays out in like a series of me- um, messages and Timothy Chalamet grows up to be Casey Affleck. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Murph. Murph comes yep. on the screen. It's the first time she sent a message. She's so pissed at her dad for leaving her. Yeah. Um, but this is special because Murph is now 33 years old, which is the same age as Oof. Cooper. Cooper said to her before he left, Hey, when I get back, I might, we might be the same yeah. age. Yeah. And so Murph, who is very, I mean, she's angry and she's like kind of, mm, stoic but then she says so now would be a really good time for you to come back and she kind of starts to break down again yeah just beautiful performance um by jessica chastain and then you cut back to cooper cooper had been crying watching tom's messages he is now ugly sobbing like uncontrollably yeah that fucking performance matthew mcconaughey just it's, I mean, it, it truly has become iconic, an iconic image and yeah. scene from the movie. Um, and it's just stunning. I, 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 I think I cry or like tear up every time I see it, no matter how many times I see it. It's so yeah. devastating. Like, uh, and, and I think it motive it mo- in this, in a way, I think, um, influences how he acts to Dr. Brand later because he's pissed at her and I think he you Mm. know in some ways maybe not like conscious I mean you know I think he harbors some resentment about what happened and blames her in some way for what went on on Miller's planet um because she just like would not fucking get back in the ship but yeah Uh, and the fact of like his son is the one who like keeps up the messages for a while and he then says all of these messages are just drifting out there in the darkness and he does his son's like doing this doesn't even know if he's getting the messages Mm -hmm. um and then his son decides like I should let you go so and like um Cooper like starts shaking his head back and forth Mm -hmm. no like don't do that and then and then we see Smurf oh I mean so I'm not a parent so I my imagination is limited but imagine being a parent and, and what to you is kind of a blink of an eye, your 10 year old girl daughter mm-hmm. is now 33 years old and oh. you just realize, and, and that's the thing with time. You can't get it back. Yeah. You can never get, yeah. and that's, I think what is so haunting when we talk about like, you know, this movie and the end of the movie mm-hmm. is even though mm-hmm. it's a, you know, kind of happy ending there's so much time that Cooper can never get yeah that he missed and can never get back and yet he's still like relatively the same age like it's yeah Yeah. oh the other thing too with like Miller's Planet that um you don't realize is that because of the time slippage she only landed oh yeah hours ago and the initial data 
was just cycling endlessly. So when she landed, she was like, yeah, there's water organic, like whatever organics they say. So it seems viable. And then like minutes later, she got killed and never was able to. Yeah. Maybe Miller should have just like not jumped the gun, just chill. Right. <laughs> like that's just the she water. Was just like they got water here. We're good. Yeah, we're like good. we're we're not fish. I also want to know: land. is there is it only water? Is it just a planet of water? I think so. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's what it looks like. But yeah, and then when I start thinking about that, that she just landed moments ago, I I can't. Like, oh, I yeah. can't, I was that, like, that math just hurts. And I'm like, I cause they were like, why is the wreckage still here? Um, uh-huh. you know, 10 years later. And it's because she just literally just landed and you're like, fuck. Yeah. Wow. Haunting. Hmm. All right. You want to talk about Dr. So, Man? Yes. So because of the debacle on Miller's planet, we've said not enough fuel to visit the last two planets. Miller's the closest. So, and it looks quote unquote promising. So then they go there right off the bat. Miller's planet's cold. You see that it is so cold. Clouds have frozen mm-hmm. and chunks break off when they, when they strike them. And this is one instance where Thorne and Nolan disagreed the most about like how this was portrayed because apparently Thorne was really troubled by the laws of physics, very <laughs> troubled by laws of physics on this. So like the strength of the ice being you know in the cloud and breaking off like that just wouldn't be possible but he said also too like if that's the most egregious thing in the film they're probably doing a good job so I think he he let that one slide so they find man's base he's been in cryo this whole time love like we said how they unzip the bag and you're like Matt Damon and yeah you think he's a good guy but he's not so he starts breaking down um, once he sees people and saw and sobs and he says, pray, you never learn just how good it can be to see another face. Um, and I like too how they connected it back to like why they named it the Lazarus missions at this point, because they did literally raise him from the dead. Cause he didn't set his, um, his sleep timer. He just, he just was going to sleep through the rest of it. So then a man at this point spins this whole bullshit around his world. He's like, it's cold no shit like we get we can we can see that the days and nights are 67 hours long 67 hours long days and nights ours (laughs) is 12 (laughs) 12 days and 12 for the day and 12 through the night how the fuck am I going to be expected to stay up (laughs) in 67 hours of the day um I'm going to need those like uh um blackout curtains so that I can sleep yeah so um oh and then the the other thing too is gravity is 80 percent of earth so Mm -hmm. which is which is important and he then says I know guys I know it looks really bad up here where we are with all this ice but if we just happen to like go walk down a little bit of the ways there is um surface with breathable air and it's like paradise (laughs) <laughs> um, so we <laughs> fabricated all of the, all of the data and then, okay. I think he killed his robot to oh, yeah. hide the evidence. Yeah. Oh, 1000%. Yeah. 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 Okay. 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 I was just making sure. Like, I think he, like, I don't know if the robot ro- robot, I don't know <laughs> if the robot died. Um, cause he says like, oh, he just like malfunctioned and I had to turn him off, but 
I think. Yes. Yeah. Gaming. Yeah. He said that the robot, which I can't remember its name, um, mm-hmm. that the robot started oh, Kip. getting Kip. Kip started getting like data wrong, basically mm-hmm. identifying things wrong, which isn't the case. It's the fact that man is lying. And so he mm-hmm. um, like decommissioned him. And that's when I think Rom, when Rom is like, oh, maybe needs a human or no, no, I'm sorry. Tars <clears throat> um, offers to fix Kip. Yeah. And, and he's like, man no, is like, no, 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 he needs a human touch. It's it's good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, also like a just really quick side plot happening here, which like leads into what we're going to talk about. But Cooper is wanting to go home after realizing plan A was a lie. And so Rom suggests that um, Tars get data back going or like um, he drop off Tars and like he get data. He get Cooper gets data about the black hole. Um, Mm -hmm. so they can figure out how to harness gravity as like a way to salvage the situation. Yeah. And so, because they, they say gargantua is a gentle singularity. So something crossing the horizon might survive because it's not, you know, too bad. (laughs) They won't stretch you and break you into a million pieces. Um, so yeah, they're going to try to do that and to do this though, Rom needs the, um, seems to get something off Kip, uh, which was the robot that man booby trapped which um i guess we can go ahead and talk about like how sad it is that rom died in this moment which i did not expect to happen i know it's jumping ahead but like rom tries to access kip and says the data makes no sense and right as dr brand like is coming over the intercom to like try to tell him that man's was sabotaging them um he gets blown up yeah and to me it wasn't like yeah my guess was okay was it booby trapped but that seems like a little weird and a bit of a stretch that man Mm -hmm. would like why not just like destroy the thing and get rid of evidence or like throw it into a crevice why do you booby trap it (laughs) so that it explodes if a person does a very specific thing to it like that right I thought that was weird I felt like really sad too when Tars because Tars is there and he is a robot so he didn't get damaged but he yells to Rom um step back professor and that's Mm -hmm. when um Rom dies and then Tars says I could not save him and I was just like like I felt so bad for Tars um anyway so before all of this happens Cooper goes with Van to scout out the uh sites and you know, man is being very flaky and evasive. And he's like, uh, I don't, the conditions don't look right for us to be <laughs> able to go today. And Cooper's like, no, nah, man, we've got to like set up three sites. I want to do this now. Let's go do it. And so man's like, all right, I guess. And so, um, he shows Cooper the site and surprise it's more ice. It's nothing. And this is when man admits he never he never considered the possibility that his planet wasn't the one and then pushes cooper into a ravine thus we have the sabotage so yeah yeah. he rips off his transmitter um yeah pushes him into the ravine and then as like tries to to kill him yeah he there is one funny moment like a little, I guess a little bit of levity to the situation that's unfolding um, is that man starts hitting, like Cooper hasn't pinned down and man just starts like hitting Cooper with his helmet um, to get him off of him. And Cooper's like, 
yo dude there's a 50 50 chance you're gonna kill yourself doing this yeah and man's like those are the best odds I've had in years and I I did like have a little bit of a lol moment at that point (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just because it's Matt Damon and I'm like oh oh, Matt Damon (laughs) silly silly Matt (laughs) um but man this is when okay man gets super weird I think man could have been a serial killer yes um yeah. Cause he starts you, yeah. talking. Yeah. Cause he starts talking to Cooper as Cooper is dying yes. and he's like, I can't watch you go through this, but I'll talk you through it. And he's like, I'm here for you. You're not alone. Oh, that he says, do you see your children? Cause he says like beforehand, what do they say is the last thing you're going to see before you die is your children. Yeah. So fucking disturbing. So, so disturbed. Yeah. He's <laughs> man's been alone too long. He's <laughs> lost his damn mind. I like how he says, I'll talk you through it. And then he's like, oh, I can't hear you die. Sorry, I'm going to. Yeah, gonna well, he says, I thought I could watch, but I can't. <laughs> Why did you think you could watch? Like, yeah. what the fuck? So stupid. But then, it's, then, okay, so he does that. He does turn his comms off so he mm-hmm. can't hear Cooper dying. But then it also um, means that he can't hear that Cooper was able to get the transmitter back. Mm-hmm. And uh, to connect with Dr. Brand. And so then man decides once the, once his robot blows up everything that I don't, I mean, I guess, I don't know when he decided what the plan yeah, was at this point exactly. or when, yeah. Um, but he's going to take a, the ship to dock with the endurance and maroon their asses basically. Okay. So what was man's end game? What was his at least original plan? I think that he was hoping to be rescued and they would have already like found another planet. He was probably banking on the fact that like of all these 12 planets, somebody, they're going to find somebody's planets viable. And so it really matter if I've lied because they've already found another planet. And then when they, when he realizes that they didn't and his is the only planet, um, or at least like they couldn't get to Edmund's planet. He is like, oh, we've got to go to Edmund's planet. I don't even know. I don't know. I think he was just like, get me off this fucking planet. And um, I will do anything it takes to like get off of this planet. So I think this is another major like hole and area. Of mm. co- things just like don't add up because there are several quotes from man during this time where he's talking about, we have to finish the mission and he's mm-hmm. talking about like saving human race. So the, as if his, his goal, his mission is to somehow still save the human race, which would make sense because he knew about that plan A was a sham. He agreed with the, uh, professor brand. He knew, or he thought he knew that, um, people couldn't work together to save the human race. And so they had to do it mm-hmm. this way. But initially he tells, uh, Cooper, Like, I can't let you leave with all of this equipment. We need this equipment to complete the mission. Okay. So Mm -hmm. what is, what does the complete the mission mean to him at this point? Um, is it, I I don't know. That's the fucking, that's the problem to me. It's super unclear and doesn't add up as exactly what he was doing. And then he docks endurance. So now he's trying to like hijack endurance to go where Yeah, to go to earth to go to yeah. Edmonds. I don't even know how much he knows about Edmonds planet. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I think he's just panicked and like, is just wanting to, I don't Yeah. I mean, he blames it on the mission, but maybe that's just like 
I don't know. All he knows to say is like, it's a mission, it's a mission. I don't know. I mean, okay. So then let's say it's just because he wants to save his ass. The, the question is still, okay, where's he going to go? Is he, is he going to take this thing back to earth? And then what dude, like, <laughs> how are you going to explain this? <laughs> Whoops. Sorry. Um, yeah, I, wanna, I don't know. I want to read this quote. So this is from the EW article that has like a list of holes, plot holes. And it's, did anybody else get the impression if man just would have opened with, Hey, sorry about the pings. I was crazy, lonely and going nuts that the other astronauts would have thought he was super unprofessional, but still let him tag along to the next planet. Yeah. Yeah. So I that's mean, the thing. Like, why did he do Why didn't he just say, uh, he could have just said, I'm sorry. I needed to be rescued. I didn't know I what lied. to do. I lied. Let's go to the next planet or something. Like why not just do that? I don't know why. Cause he's a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, has, was he always like that? Was he always ooh, evil or did this drive him nuts? Mm-hmm. True nature came out. I think, um, I told you that there was a jump scare in this movie that oh, still yeah. gets me every time. And it's when you think like, man, he didn't, he's not able to lock on perfectly to the, um, mm-hmm endurance because tars disabled the autopilot which is idiot um so because of that he attempts to open the hatch and it blows up him himself and um part of the endurance the ship and this is when like i knew it was going to happen but when it happens where he like it blows up i still jump every single time because i don't know exactly the moment when it's going to happen i just know it's going to and then when it like you're like (laughs) what Uh, (laughs) um but i i was like this is why they brought cooper on this mission because he does this baller move of like i've got to spin our ship as fast as the endurance is is spinning from the blast so that they can dock it and then slow it down before it crashes and the fact that he gets it to spill they are both spinning this ship and their ship spinning at the exact same time so much so that they look like they are standing still mm-hmm. and everything else is spinning around them amazing like yeah. incredible yeah he knows what he's doing yeah oh we should also point point out the reference to man dr man's planet and it alluding to like how it is man human oh. who it, who is the thing that will fuck this all up like there's a conversation earlier about is nature evil? And Dr. Brandon says, mm. formidable, yes, evil, no. No, the only thing that's evil is man. Literally, Dr. Man and literally the human race. Literally. Yeah. I yeah. this makes me think of callback to our Jurassic Park episode when Ellie Sattler's like, dinosaurs eat man, woman inherits the earth. <laughs> it's funny. I was thinking of Jurassic Park too, because I was just thinking, oh funny. Life uh finds a way (laughs) and and they sure did in this movie they They did fucking found a way Mm -hmm. okay so um so once cooper and dr brand uh dr man is dead dr brandon cooper dock the endurance again um but now like the endurance is all fucked up and um in order to um cooper's found a way to like slingshot and get them to edmund's planet Mm-hmm. But to do that, you have to start unloading some weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so unloading parts of the endurance, there's like, I don't know how many Rangers are attached to this thing, but unloading those. Um, but the plan is to slingshot both of them to 
Edmund's planet. And then when it's time to do that, um, Dr. Brand realizes that Cooper is actually um, undocking himself. He needs to shed himself so that Dr. Brand can get to Edmund's planet, mm-hmm. essentially sacrificing himself. They are right on the black hole. They're using the black hole for the slingshot effect. And so um, Cooper undocks and in his ranger, he heads into the black hole. And it's mm-hmm. like debris and light and like embers just kind of shooting at him or that he's mm-hmm. like, you know, flying into. Um, and then eventually the ship starts saying, eject, eject, eject. Yeah. And then Cooper ejects, like the fuck. <laughs> I don't oh, think I would. Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Cooper ejects from the ranger, and now he's just falling into the black hole. Mm-hmm. And then he falls into the Tesseract. Dun, dun, dun. So the easiest way I would explain it is the Tesseract is a physical representation of time as a dimension. Yeah. yeah. It is a, in this case, a 3D representation. Mm-hmm. And it is a particular place in time, which is yeah. Murph's bedroom. Neil deGrasse Tyson has a really great explanation of this Tesseract and how it's not, you're basically, you have this moment in time, he can see the entire timeline. So he sees young Murph in her bedroom. He mm-hmm. sees quote unquote, present day Murph in his bedroom. He sees the scenes that we've already seen. It's mm-hmm. not like him traveling back in time. It's just that he time is now a physical dimension and he can see all of it yeah everything um I want to ask because we talked about like how we would describe what it looked like like mm-hmm. and I wrote down some things of like just what I the best way I could like describe how this scene looks first of all it's dead up like the scene from soul which call is a callback to our first episode where uh, the guy has fallen through space um or like from the great beyond is what they yeah. call it. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure interstellar inspired that scene of <laughs> it in soul. Um, but when he is in there to me, do you know those artworks that you can get where it puts an entire movie into colors into yeah. like a thing, it condenses the whole movie into a single photograph, like frame by frame. It's like that's the color like. scheme of the movie. It, like it, yeah, that's what you get yeah. out of it. Yeah. And that's what it looked like. That was the first, like, thing that I thought of um I also wrote a box of strings it just looks like string like there are boxes everywhere and they've got like these like strings that are kind of like coming from them I guess but yeah I like I think of them as like guitar strings like colorful yeah colorful guitar strings that you can pluck which he really kind of does almost uh-huh. like you can you can play them that's kind of how I yeah that's how I think of it yep yep okay so a lot happens and a lot is talk about exposition. There's a lot of it um, mm. in the scene. So Cooper realizes that he can communicate by essentially manipulating gravity or exerting force over uh, gravity. So like pushing the books off the shelf. So he's inside mm-hmm. this Tesseract and he can go back to young Murphy in her bedroom and push the books off the, cell- the shelf. And so initially he is like desperate to communicate stay. Yeah. He wants to, cause he wants to reverse all this bad shit that just happened. Mm-hmm. And he, so he thinks he can kind of like in a way travel back in time and, and change that. And so he's communicating stay and screams at some point, like, don't let me leave Murph. Oh, um, it was so sad. Like 
the yeah he says make him stay Murph don't don't let me leave yeah. and oh this is there this is a TikTok sound by the way um now and I might do it for this episode but it's literally like the first shot is supposed to be of you doing something in the past that um you're going to regret in the future and then it cuts to you in the future like feigning your hand on a window going no 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 and so I might have to figure one out for that but yeah nice. so what he doesn't really understand at this point is that like you can't change what's already happened that's like not how this works so anyway tars who also um went into the black hole um we start hearing his voice we don't know where he is we don't see him but we Mm -hmm. can you know he's in his transmitter and his his helmet Mm -hmm. tars explains that quote unquote they this other advanced evolved being constructed this 3d world the tesseract inside a fifth dimension where you can exert um, gravity across space and time. Mm-hmm. Cooper comes to realization that we brought ourselves to this point. Mm. He brought himself there. So he communicates the in this moment, he communicates the NASA coordinates to young mm-hmm. Murph's bedroom in the scene that we saw earlier. So now he's getting it. Yeah. Um, and now he's getting that he's supposed to he's supposed to be there. He doesn't want to undo everything. He needs to be there. Um, yeah. so he, he communicates the coordinates. That's how they initially find NASA and set off this whole journey. Um, and then Cooper starts communicating the black hole data to solve the gravitational question, um, mm-hmm. through Morse code on Murph's watch. Yep. It's a watch they had a moment with in the beginning. Um, they're going to, when they get back together, they're going to, you know, see what the time is on there. It doesn't really make sense. Anyway, he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And he knows that Murph will come back for the watch because of their love, their connection. Mm -hmm. And he says that the way they make sense of it is that these higher beings, the they, they can basically, they can see time as a physical dimension, but they can't control like basically where to go. Yeah. They can't like, they can't navigate it. So they needed Murph and Cooper because Cooper's love would take him to that space. Yeah. In time. But like, I think the love between them, like she would understand. Yes. yes. She would understand his message. Yes. But he says that they couldn't, the evolved beings. So here, here, let me just ask this. This is the question. Why couldn't these evolved advanced beings have sent the black hole data to professor brand on their own? And I think the answer is this love thing. Yeah. Because, well, Cooper says he's the bridge between the fifth dimension and third. I don't, I mean, whatever, for whatever reason, they can't do it, but he can. And I think the answer, it's, it's kind of confusing, but it's supposed to be love because, like mm-hmm. I said, the advanced beings can't choose where to go and whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, the Tesseract collapses, Cooper floats about, we don't know what's going to happen. And then we cut to him waking up in a hospital bed. Oh, can I, can I add one more thing? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, I think this was the thing that like took me the longest to understand was that the, they meet was, uh, is us human beings. Mm-hmm. And, um, cause when I first watched it, when they say they, 
I'm thinking aliens, like Mm. someone of like a different species, different um, entity. And I remember being my like a little teeny disappointed that it was aliens that it is just like oh it's us but like we're so advanced that we found a way to um to create this fifth dimension um but yeah that was the only thing I wanted to add I like the idea that it's humans because then that says yeah that we we can get there right and, and, and I think it also and it also means like we survive too. Like if we've, mm-hmm. if we've evolved to this like point, this, we have a civilization, civilization that's advanced beyond three, four dimensions. Um, then, you know, humanity is going to survive, which is cool too. Yeah. Or that it has survived before. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So test rack collapses, Cooper floats about, wakes up in a hospital bed and he's on um, Cooper station, not named after him. It is named after nope. Murph. <laughs> They're yeah. like, it's not named <laughs> after you. <laughs> I'm just going to flow right into the, just to the ending to kind of close this out. So um, the, they're on the space station. That's like a cylinder that looks like the earth that we knew. And it like curves up and it's, mm-hmm. it's trippy. I've seen um, um, illustrations of something like this before when, um, we're talking about like colonizing space and what that could look like. Mm, I don't mm-hmm. really know all the like ideas behind it, the science behind it, but um, so Murph is alive. She's been in cryo sleep for two years on a, and she's on another station, but they are transferring her and waking her up to bring her to Cooper station. Cause of course she wants to um, see her father. Right. Um, they take Cooper to, it's like their house has been replicated and turned into like a museum. Yeah. Um, and there's like, he likes farming so much. Yeah. And we see these, um, videos like documentary style videos again, including one of old Murph. Uh, anyway, and then he goes and he sees Murph and it's a a beautiful, just kind of like moment Mm. and exchange between them. Um, it ends with her, telling cooper to go find brand because brand is Mm -hmm. still out there Mm -hmm. and then we see brand and she is on edmund's planet which appears to be habitable looks just like Mm -hmm. maybe an undeveloped colorado looks like a viable option other than the fact that edmund died by a landslide rock slide did it say um no you just see um I guess it's case is the one who's left with her. He's like digging out something in the rubble and you see like a flag and it's like, and I think that is supposed to be. And then she like goes to his grave Mm -hmm. uh, later. And I think like he must've died in a land or like a rock slide or something. Bummer. Um, Bummer. (laughs) What a way to go. You make it that far and a rock gets you. Um, Anyway. And that's it. I think that's the last thing we see. Um, Yeah. And I think, I just think in terms of like pacing and closing out this huge epic you've just watched, I think it does a, a good job of kind of tying a bow on everything. God, this scene when I, like when he walks in and sees like his, I mean, it is his family. All of these extended people are his part of his family, but he doesn't know them. And then he sees Murph and she's an old woman that fucked me up. Yeah. I was like, wow, he the last time he saw his kid, she was what, eight, 10, 10, something 
10. Yeah. Um, and the next time he sees her, she's an old woman that really messed me up. Like I was distraught about that. Um, and then the fact of like, she talks about how people didn't believe her, but she knew that he was the ghost and she was like, she knew he'd be back because my dad promised me. And then like, I'm going to start crying. Like that gets me every time. Oh, yeah. So good. It's so good. Like, even though it is haunting, I can keep saying that word haunting, but it's so good. Um, the other thing I didn't realize too, until I watched this, this time is that Edmund was number 12. He was the 12th man to be like, to go off into, you know, space. So he was the last one, which I feel like is supposed to be, I feel like that's supposed to be symbolic in some way. Um, didn't they all go at the same time? Well, yeah, but he was like number 12. Like he's his, like, um, there's something like Edmonds is his name is like on something and mm -hmm. each of them was, I guess, assigned a number. And so Edmund was number 12, like man was hmm. number four. Um, and so he was the, the last, the 12th and last man. Hmm. Anywho, ta-da, that's it. That's it. Y'all we are on hour, hour three of recording. But we've gone past the length of the movie <laughs> we sure have all right let's get into some why the flick moments I only have one whoa okay because <laughs> there's so many yeah. and I was like you know what I'm just going to um bring a little bit of levity and humor <laughs> more humor to this I just want to know why the flick do they got to be given oceans a bad rap like that <laughs> on the planet oh. <laughs> oceans yeah that's a whole ball a whole planet of water a world of water like. sounds beautiful to me but not one with the i can't survive foot. in that <laughs> i need i need land i am i don't have gills <laughs> but yeah i was like man they really um gave oceans a bad rap okay i have um a list but i'll just i'm just gonna do a couple but i'm gonna start with sorry why the flick is NASA so white? Mm. It's particularly pronounced to me when they are around that table in NASA mm -hmm. and they're explaining everything. Yeah. Um, they're all white, except there's one black character. We never, we barely see him in the background. It's a black mm -hmm. man and he doesn't have any speaking role. Doesn't even get like a, like a close up. Yeah. And it's just, it irks me. Um, I was gonna say a little bit, but kind of a lot. And again, like yeah. in terms of casting would have been so easy to cast more because there are yeah. so many different supporting roles. If you were hell bent oh, sure. on having, you know, the leads be and uh, Hathaway and, um, Matthew McConaughey. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, what's new. It comes up in so many of the movies that we watch. Um, why the flick does Cooper let man keep hitting his helmet shield? He's on top of him. He can get off. He just sits there. Right. He lets him do it like three, four times. He does. He does. Not, not the brightest in that moment, Cooper. Yeah. After, especially after you're like, there's a 50, 50% chance, like just get up. And then at that point, like, just be like, okay, dude, can we, you lied. All right. Let's just like try to reconcile at this point. But obviously man's crazy. Yeah. Um, there's no so reconciling. There's, there's no reconciling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a how the flick. How the flick did Cooper find that tiny little transmitter? So <laughs> Dr. Man rips it off and throws it into like an ice abyss. 
but somehow <laughs> Cooper is close to it and finds it. And it doesn't even make sense because like he was thrown into a crevice after, like he would have had to have climbed. Yes, there was <laughs> definitely like a, something I read where it was like, these scenes are not the same. Like he, they go down into this ravine and then the next scene is like them panning away and you see this vast Iceland. Yeah. No, no cliff to be found where they fell from the ravine. Right. So a little bit of a error uh, in uh, yeah. continuity there. But yeah, I like to think that the they, the they, this whole time we're just like, nut, like maybe they nudged it like uh, ever so closer. To, I don't uh, think that's how it works. They are, <laughs> they are not spirits floating around them. <laughs> um, okay. My, I'll make this my last one, which is why the flick did man think that it was okay to override the ship controls when he wasn't properly docked. Like, how did he not know? That's I don't not- think he was thinking clearly. He like, again, I think he's just crazed and desperate and he's like I've got to get off I need to get out of here and he does not care like and he's not thinking rationally that's the only like justification I yeah but if you have this intense crazed drive to survive that he does you might think about that <laughs> you might think about this isn't properly docked and when I open this door shit's gonna go down well, one could say he was so crazed to survive that that was his downfall was that he, you know, yeah. Murphy's law. What can we, you know, that thing where <laughs> he's like, why, why, why did you name me after something so terrible? And he's like, it's not terrible. It just means what can happen will happen. And that's what happened to Dr. Man. You could explain this entire, you could explain any movie and any plot hole or any weakness. Hey, what, what can happen will happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get to um ratings. Yes. So the critics on this movie give it fairly high praise. I mean, fairly, you know, fairly decent ratings, I'd say. So on IMDB, 8.7 out of 10. That's pretty high. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, critics give it 72%. Um, yeah, I know. Oh. Interesting. Um, but audiences give it significantly higher at 86%. The audiences enjoyed it more than critics did. I expected both to be higher. Mm-hmm. But again, I, yeah. I, I understand that this movie is not. For I understand everyone. now yeah. that you're saying like people see a lot of plot holes in it. So yeah. Yeah. I'm I at, like all the things we talked about. Imagine if we saw all those things in our first viewing, we wouldn't mm-hmm. be really like talking about this in the same way. We just, yeah. Yeah. You know, everything, all the other elements worked so well for us that we were able to see past that. Well, I'll go ahead and share my rating first. So I love this movie. I love the story. I'm so glad they veered from killer robots and instead focused on like the human connections and, you know, had space be this vast backdrop to it all. I think this is a visual masterpiece i'm so happy it did win an oscar for best visual effects that year and especially like in a year where it was up against like these big superhero movies like um guardians of the galaxy was also up that year there was an x-men movie up that year so very happy it won after seeing this i think all the performances from the actors 
were amazing. My favorite, uh, probably like I said, dramatic role from Matthew McConaughey yet. I really liked him a lot. Um, and I think it just proved that he does have a range beyond the uh, rom-com actor, though I feel like we should definitely do some of his rom-coms at some point. Um, as we've said, the music, Chef's Kiss, I expect nothing less from, from Hans Zimmer. And so I'm actually going to give this like a nearly perfect rating for this movie, despite everything that we've talked about with the plot holes. I don't care. Um, and I'm going to give it a 4.9 out of 5. Nice. The only thing is I take off 0.1% because Dr. Kip Thorne was very troubled by those ice clouds. Um, but other than that, you, I give it high marks. Are you docking <laughs> for the ice clouds? That's the thing? <laughs> only thing. Because I was like, it doesn't feel like, I don't know. It didn't feel like a perfect 5 out of 5 to me, but it was still very high. And then I was like, you know what? I'll go back to uh, to uh, what Kip Thorne said and, and use that as my reasoning. But yeah, I still think like very good movie, superb. Okay, so to recap some of the things that I love about this movie. To me, ultimately what makes this movie a masterpiece is that it is so incredibly ambitious in terms of the universe exploration the science the space the scale of the of the film is incredibly ambitious and then at the same time you have these these very intimate stories very human stories and dilemmas and decisions and all of that and i think that is a rare uh thing to find and to find it done well so to me that is a big reason then you know the the dilemmas the big ethical question of you know saving yourself and your loved ones versus saving the human race. Um, it's a great question. It's not an easy answer. And so to be able to like explore it through this movie, I loved that. Also loved the cast, loved Jessica Chastain. Um, the music, it's my new bop, all of it. <laughs> I'm getting to a point where I can like identify the names of songs, which is not often Funny. I can do <laughs> on a score. Um, Stay is maybe my favorite. When I watched it on first viewing, to me, it's a perfect movie. Perfect for me, at least. And a perfect experience, I think, more than anything. That's mm -hmm. This movie is about the experience of it. Um, like I mentioned before, the more you watch, and then maybe if you are um, researching the movie for fun or for a podcast, um, things start to really break down. And um, I think there are a lot of murky things and holes and conveniences that are just way too convenient however for me it's about that first viewing in the first cut the first few viewings and so I'm going to rate it on that based on that yeah. five out of five yeah <laughs> this again kind of like with soul is like it's, a, it's a perfect movie for me um this yeah. is a, a perfect movie to me I don't think you can call it a perfect movie because again once you take a lens, uh, microscope to it, mm -hmm. lots of holes yeah. and such, but also yeah. like, like even some of the reviews I read that were critical, they were still, they respected and appreciated the fact that the ambition of this film mm -hmm. and the things yeah. that it was able to do, um, and accomplish. And I, so I think you have to be, you, you definitely have to be willing to suspend disbelief yeah, and, and you have to be willing to, um, kind of overlook some of these things in exchange for the good pieces of it. Um, and yep. 
yeah so I I, I do that and I think <sighs> it's worth that and were you afraid I was going to be like, yeah, you five. really had me going there. You were like, <laughs> I'm like, just tell me what you're doing. And so when you said five out of five, I was very excited. So I, yeah, I thought about like docking, um, you know, maybe taking it down to four, given all the things that we talked about, but no, for me, it's about that experience and it's about that, that mm-hmm. first experience. So yeah. Yeah. Beautiful movie, beautiful way to end our run we'll call it uh, before we take our extended break. So this means that we do not have a new movie to announce because going on a break, but we promise, 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 we will be back. (laughs) Just like um, Cooper said to Murph, he will be back. We will be back. We will not forget you. Don't forget us. And we're going to use this time off to regroup and come back better than ever. So I just want to say, Thank you to our listeners for coming along with us on this journey. And thank you to my awesome co-host who with, I could not do this without. Um, It's been a pleasure to talk about these movies with you. If you, the listener, I'm talking to you now, have not had time to listen to all 17 episodes of Why the Flick, now is a great time to catch up while we're on a break. And you can find us on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. And while you're there, why not show us how much you love us and want us to come back by giving us five-star review, a five-star review, and better yet, a written review on Apple Podcasts. And you can tell us which one of our episodes is your favorite. What was your favorite moment from our, our first run? And then additionally, you can follow us on our social media channels. We're at Why the Flick on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And we're going to keep staying active there while we are on our break. So please keep interacting with us. We love it when you guys comment or send us a DM. Let us know like what movies we should be um, adding to our spreadsheet for when we do come back. And we definitely want to want to hear from you guys. So other than that, just stay tuned for more and we'll be back. Bye. Bye.